<laughs> oh, good lord. Here we go. Hey, everybody. What's cracking? How's everybody? How's the weekend? Big kiss. Mwah. We'll start it, start it off with a big kiss. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by a new sponsor. It's called Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter is a, um, it's a website that if you're hiring people, it allows you to reach the most qualified candidates. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place just isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 50-plus job sites, including Craigslist, LinkedIn, and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once, once, and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and then hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 200,000 businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, you cheap bitches. If you're like, I don't want to spend money on this. Well, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan, and you can try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com com slash Rogan. Enjoy it and find the correct candidate for the job you're hiring for. We're also brought to you by NatureBox. Oh, yummy, yummy NatureBox. I'm sitting here in honor of our guest, Cara Santa Maria, who's from Texas. I'm eating the Lone Star Snack Mitch. Mix. <laughs> Mitch. What's in that? Mitch. Yummy stuff. Beer, yeah. domestic Mostly. violence. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of America. Uh, it's, it seems like it's mostly nuts. It's yummy, though. Um, Nature Box uh, gives you a ton of delicious choices, uh, hundreds of different choices. Really yummy stuff. Peanut butter nom noms. Have you had those yet? Yeah, those are good. Pretty goddamn good. Um, dark cocoa almonds. Have you had those? Mm-mm. Baked sweet potato fries. I had those. Those are Ooh, good. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I haven't found any sriracha cashews. I don't know what the fuck is going on. There might be some sort of a shortage. I talked too much about the sriracha they, cashews. No, you seriously did. They they were like gone off the website for a bit. They are that good. Yeah. They are that good. Nature Box is pretty fucking badass. It's an excellent way to get healthy snacks delivered to your home. And if you have like specific requirements, like if you want snacks that are low on sugar, non-GMO, without gluten, they have all that stuff. They have all their snacks have zero trans fats, zero high fructose corn syrup. So they're very delicious and you don't have to feel guilty about them, especially if you choose correctly. Big Apple Pineapple, or Big Island rather, Big Apple Pineapple, like someone's growing pineapples in New York. The fuck is wrong with that? <laughs> that's, what, that's what happens when you fly and then you try to talk. Your brain, your brain is like, what'd you do to me, stupid? Um, but Big Island Pineapple, really delicious. And simple, simple stuff. The... Um, those uh, blueberry almonds, too. I can go on and on and on. There's a lot of different choices from NatureBox. And you can have NatureBox shipped directly to you for free. If you're one of those people that works in an office and you're tired of going to that vending machine looking for a snack and just choosing the the most healthy out of everything that's non-healthy, you can do way better. You can do way better with NatureBox. And if you go to naturebox.com right now, you're going to go 50% off your month's first box. So go to naturebox.com slash Rogan, and you will get 50% off your first box. Naturebox.com slash Rogan. Yummy, yummy stuff. Enjoy it. Go try it out. I guarantee you, you'll find something that you like. Uh, Last but not least, 
<clears throat> we're brought to you by Onnit.com. That is O-N-N-I-T. Onnit is a human optimization website. And what we sell primarily is things that we find that, well, mostly things that I use, things that we find that benefit you, whether it's strength and conditioning equipment, like our kettlebell series, um, the zombie bells and the primal bells, which are these artistically created kettlebells that are all 3D balanced and mapped. So even though they look cool, they function just like a regular kettlebell. If you've never used any athletic equipment, I said this ad nauseum, but I have to I have to repeat it because I don't want anybody to get hurt. Please start slowly. You do not have to kill yourself the first day. If you're one of those people that hasn't worked out for years, and you're like, this is it, I'm going to work out like a fucking monster from now on. And then the first day you work out really hard and you hurt yourself, well, that's not good, right? That's not good. What you want to do is start slowly and just write things down. There's a lot of people in this world could benefit from writing down things that you want to accomplish. Write down a routine, a simple routine, real simple. Today I'm going to do 20 push-ups, 20 sit-ups, and I'm going to run a mile. You can do that. It won't take that long. It'll probably take like an hour, you know, to get everything done. Maybe. What's what's a, a strong mile? Seven minutes? You're not going to run seven-minute mile if you've never run before. You're probably going to run ten minutes. So that's, you know, it's enough time. Just get a little exercise in, folks. Do a little something. Get your blood pumping. It's fucking good for you. We also sell healthy foods and supplements like the new Warrior Bar that uh, we started selling it on it, which is a all-natural buffalo bar, 14 grams of protein, no antibiotics, no added hormones, gluten-free, very yummy, and it's done with this old Lakota recipe that um, they, they use uh, cranberries, and it's, uh, it's actually quite delicious. And like I said, 140 calories, four grams of fat, and it's a two-ounce serving with 14 grams of protein. Excellent for you. All the stuff at Onnit we sell is all stuff that either myself or Aubrey uses, and we, we find the very best things as far as, like, protein supplements, as far as, uh, you know, any, any of the items that we sell. We just try to find you the best shit that we can. You can go to Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T, use the code word ROGAN, and you will save 10% off any and all supplements. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Boom, kapowie, wowie, Kara, Santa Maria is here. Why fuck around, Brian? Cue the music. Maybe. Maybe? <laughs> Can I do this? <laughs> Already? Yeah. What's going on? I don't know. This Brian likes to fuck around with new operating systems. He may have loaded some new operating system onto his fucking yeah, laptop. Yeah, it's not playing. Why don't you just sing it? Do, 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 do. Uh, wait. How's it? Did you want to check it out? You had it working earlier. Know, what happened? He doesn't know. even know the music. This is a. This operating system's not legit yet. Is it, <laughs> what's this one called? Uh, Yosemite. It's called Yosemite. I thought they were like cats and shit. <laughs> yeah, this is a mouse. This is so ghetto. Kara <laughs> <laughs> Santa Maria is here, ladies and gentlemen. My friend, Brian's friend, Jamie knows her. <laughs> but <laughs> we'll all be friends eventually. What's up? How are you? Good to I'm see good. you. How are you? What's cracking? Oh, there we go. There. You did all right. it. Fucking... I'm trying to um, tell my my Facebook followers that I'm on right now, but mm. there's so many different Joe Rogans, and yeah. I don't want to click on the wrong one. Which one is you? Joe Rogan, D-O-T-N-E-T. What the fuck? Dot net. No, but like on your Facebook, which one is your oh. your actual? Or are these all just people trying to? Mostly, be you? they're not me. Yeah. Are, yeah, there's like a hundred fake me's all out right. there. So I may be tagging fake Joe Rogan okay. right now. If someone's sending you some dick pics. Uh -huh. Guarantee you, that's not me. Uh -huh. All right, guarantee you. Good to know. You. Good to know. Not, even it looks exactly like my dick. That's not me. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. 
I have the sweet Talk Nerdy t-shirt on uh, right now, which uh, represents Cara Santa Maria's awesome podcast. How many episodes do you have now? I just put up episode 26. Jesus Louises. Can you believe that? And Was I, I on number one? You were number one. Yeah. Fuck yeah. And I do it weekly. And you... You inspired me. You and your listeners inspired me to do this. Well, you're you're born for this. This but is I'm, a perfect venue for you. I'm telling you, thank you, by the way, but I'm telling you, when I left your um, studio the last time I was on, I probably got 300 tweets from people saying, start your podcast, start oh, your podcast, we'll awesome. listen. Beautiful. Yeah, and it was great. It was so great. That's so cool that you already have 26 of them. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. How did you do that so fast? Just, um, I just do them weekly, and it's been wow. that long. <laughs> it's been 26 weeks? Yeah. So it's been six months, uh-huh. essentially? Yeah, I started wow. in like March or April. Wow. Whatever that was. That's awesome, though. Yeah. That's so cool that you did it. You you need something like this because, you know, whenever you deal with a lot of producers or, you know, network folk, they mean well, mm. but they all, everyone has their own idea of what should happen. And even if they're nice people, it gets in the way. It's so true. And like I, you know, right now I contribute to two different television shows and I'm very lucky. I'm a freelancer. I'm a contributor. So I work on a show on Al Jazeera America called Techno, which is a great science kind of news magazine style show. And then I work on a local show here in L.A. called SoCal Connected, which is on KCET, which used to be our PBS affiliate. And now it's just a, um, a public television kind of standalone. And that's great. I have great producers. I get to self-produce some stuff. It's it's wonderful. Prior to only doing those and the podcast, I was full-time on a show called Take Part Live on Pivot TV. That was daily, 8 to 12 hours a day, every day, you know, hair and makeup for two hours straight, basically. Two hours? Yeah. Were they trying to turn you into a werewolf? Insane. Absolutely <laughs> insane. That? Yeah, yeah. Two didn't, hours? Didn't look like, wasn't allowed to wear my hair straight, wasn't allowed to wear black, wasn't allowed, it was crazy. Like I could They had rules? Very strict. I could not be myself on that show. And I look back and that is really when the podcast started because I was so, like you said, kind of boxed into speaking only in sound bites and presenting a version of myself that honestly, I was not comfortable really presenting. The podcast was a really, really necessary outlet. Like it was so psychologically freeing for me. And now I think it really helps keep me centered and anchored when I do new jobs and new work to really understand how not to let things get out of hand like that. Yeah. The best representative of yourself is yourself. Yeah. And when you got a bunch of people like deciding what you should do, I think you'd be great if you wore pink. Oh, you look like you should be in pink. That legitimate, like I did. They made me wear pink. Like it was crazy. <laughs> and I had to wear my hair all curly. I had it dyed Why red curly? and they hated that. And I don't know, man. It's like, <laughs> I think it's because I think it's because I was the only girl on the show. At the time it was like very male heavy and I was supposed to be like the representative of the female species, which was like, come on. I'm kind of a tomboy. Like it wasn't really working for me. It was a lot of short skirts too, which it's weird for yeah. me. Like I like to wear black leather. Whoa. But yeah, they, short they, skirts they are weird that. anyway. And we've talked about it many times in the podcast about how you watch Fox News and all oh. those women who like it's almost like they have it in their contract that they have to uncross and cross their legs like a certain amount of times per minute. Yep. Because it's like, who the fuck is that uncomfortable that you're constantly <laughs> shifting and switching your legs back and forth? And if a man dressed like that, it would be so insane. Oh, can you imagine? It's yeah. insane. Because there are, you know, if you watch runway shows ever, or you keep up with fashion at all, there are kind of male versions of that 
sort of ensemble, but nobody actually wears that in real life. Like the short, kind of tight, maybe not up to your nutsack, but like halfway down your thigh, these little like plaid shorts and yeah. the cute little, you know, it's very runway. But even those are shorts. Yeah. There's something crazy about, about a, a skirt. Yeah, I agree. I it's, mean, it's just like easy access. It's the most <laughs> ridiculous invention. It's like your vagina, which is your coveted sexual organ. I mean, this is like, this is the, where the baby come out this is where you let the loved ones in there's so much to the vagina and yet it's there protected by the thinnest piece of fabric if if it's it so even ridiculous. is we've seen all these little teeny bopper celebrities and their little whoopsies getting in in and out of cars whoopsies, whoopsies. where there just happen to be exactly. cameras right down oh. near their vaginas like that's not a whoopsie Those, well, that's, that shit was engineered and what's the reasoning behind that i Show mean the cooter why would you want to do that some people want to look at it Ugh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want that. Anthony Clark, you know Anthony Clark, the stand-up comedian. I'll never forget what he said about vaginas because um, he's of a different persuasion. He goes, first time I saw a vagina, I was like, ew, when's it going to heal?" <laughs> 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 but then it, it is a weird thing. I mean, that you're presented as uh, a serious journalist on Fox News or as a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. which is what you are, and yet they want you to to have your vagina. Basically, just barely protected Seriously. by a, a, a little, a little like napkin that they throw over it's, it. It's <laughs> no thank you. And always the cameras are, you know, right at the midline. Of course, they're at the midline of the table, and mm-hmm. so it's it's just like an unflatter or, or ultra flattering, depending on how you look at it, angle that just right. makes you feel really exposed. It's yeah. How are you supposed to take somebody seriously? Well, like not that? only that, it's it doesn't make you any hotter. That's no, where people are confused. No, you don't have to do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to. Like, I think it's a little better sometimes to leave things up to the imagination. Yeah, I well, I mean, no, it's not. It's definitely <laughs> better to be naked. But I'm saying, like, if you're maybe on a t- not on, maybe not on TV, on the news. Well, it's maybe like maybe not what naked your, news. What's your yeah? What's your objective? I mean, is it better in real life? Well, no. Well, I don't know. Depends on what you're trying to do. But if you're on a show where you're just trying to like talk about issues, it's distracting. Yeah. You know, it's distracting to have like this really sexy outfit on. And I think that's half the reason why these like Fox Fox News type shows do that. Barbara Walters never dressed like that. No. Remember Katie the- Couric did, but she, you know, not too too scandalous, but she did wear short skirts. And I was actually just watching, so I'm going to get a little more comfortable. I'm very short, and I feel tiny in this chair. Hmm. Um. So. I'm just crossing my legs. All right. So I was watching this um, documentary called Misrepresentation. Have you seen this? No. I'm about to get like super feminist on the show now. Really early just so I can piss off like everybody on Twitter. Um, It's actually a really good documentary. It's called Misrepresentation. You can find it on Netflix. And it was uh, produced and um, kind of narrated by Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who's Gavin Newsom's wife. And the whole thing is kind of about media representations of women, how women are portrayed, how women, you know, make up X amount of the population, X amount of the jobs in this field, in this field, in this field, and then how they're represented both in fictional television, but also in nonfiction programming. And they talk a little bit about that kind of why are female newsreaders meant to look so... um, sexy it's always kind of like the crusty old dude and then like his hot niece like that's what it looks like when you look at a <laughs> a news reading team um and and they have these great interviews with people like lisa ling and, and katie Couric and kind of talking about Katie actually is very open and says, I I kind of feel guilty, like almost I played into this, like maybe I set this trend in motion. And, um, you know, I was fit, I wore, you know, not 
ridiculously short skirts, but you could see my legs on TV. And then it seems like that's now the formula that every newsreader has to have. Hmm. And you almost just assume that they're dumb. Like it, it, it portrays I, – I don't think it portrays strength, unfortunately, when you have these like – girls that are women that look like they're trying so hard to be sexy, then all of a sudden it, it puts it in your head like, oh, she's just reading a script that somebody else wrote for her. When sometimes these are really, really bright, really successful women. Like, why do we... Yeah. Well, I guess they just want people to watch it and they just feel like the best way to hook people is sex. Yeah. And, and the truth is they, they also in the documentary, they showed um, all of the major news corporations, which there aren't that many anymore. You know, they've been kind of conglomerating and and uh, more and more of the property is owned by less and less people. And they showed the number of women on the board on the board of all of these different news organizations. And so you look at like Time Warner or you look at Viacom and it's like one woman, two women, you know, two women. And it, uh, as opposed to like 30 men or 15 men, the people that are making the shows and the people who have ultimate control over those kinds of decisions historically and to this day are like 99% male. I wonder if that's why like women like Megan Kelly, that Fox lady, mm-hmm. who's not dumb at all. Mm-hmm. She's very sharp, yeah, but she's, she's also kind of mean, yeah. kind of got an edge to her. I wonder if it's like to like let you know, hey, fuck face, just because I've got my tits hanging out and my legs are, are crisscrossed barely covering my cooter uh-huh. i'll still put you in your place yeah, like, i, I wonder if she feels like she has to, to be on her she's on her heels all the time like always backed up yeah i don't think it's an uncommon feeling for women who are just in a position where they're surrounded by men who just are going to assume when they walk in the door that she's just dumb bimbo she's a weather girl she's a news reader but really she's writing her own copy and doing her own research and yeah. is a really strong smart i mean i disagree with like fucking everything she says but i've seen her be a total brilliant shark on air before Mm -hmm. she's slightly more rational than most of the people on that network that's not saying much yeah she can be pretty rational but she you know she's right wing and that's just that's her thing yeah and she's like like a real right wing yeah santa claus is white okay (laughs) is that her Mm -hmm. kapow she's hot as fuck that's very distracting Right? It is. But it, it's also. I don't think she usually looks like that on air. That's what she should do. Just fucking work it all the way. Terrible be idea. ridiculous. She should do the news from a bed. All the, all the news should be done from silk sheets. Yeah, look there at you that. Go. She's got her tits highlighted. Yeah. She does. They're that's, different colored. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting. I mean, come on. Interesting are, wardrobe choice. She basically has a two tone thing with the tits, like, impossible to not look at because they don't blend in at all. And that's the thing. It's like they really push you. I remember on um, Take Part Live one day wearing. One of my favorite looks, which was like black pants, high heels, a white button down shirt that was fitted. I mean, I think that the outfit was I'd consider it like a hot outfit and a black tie. And but I had my hair braided and kind of pulled back and I was wearing glasses. And my producer told me that I couldn't dress like that anymore because it was too masculine. Oh, that's hilarious. I know. Does you know what you like, look like? <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm a girl. Like, it's obvious that I'm not trying to be a dude. I like to wear ties. Is your producer gay? No. No. You don't have to say. No, he wasn't. He wasn't? No. No. Maybe he really was. No, he wasn't. Maybe he really was. For sure he wasn't. Well, if he thought you looked masculine like that. No, I mean, I don't know. It's like, put on a short skirt. like, And, and you get that thing, too, where even if they don't overtly tell you, it's like you get off air every night. And when you're dressed in an outfit that you love, like pants, a shirt, like you feel comfortable, but you feel good about yourself. And you look in the mirror and you think your body looks good. It's like, whatever. Okay, fine show, whatever. You wear like the dumbest little short pink skirt or dress that you're totally uncomfortable in and you're not acting like mm-hmm. yourself. You look great tonight. Yeah. 
like in your IFB, like in your ear. It's yeah, yeah, in your IFB, so in your gross. ear. Yeah, because they're, they're constantly there, like in your ear. Like that's gross too. Yeah. The IFBs are gross. I know. Those it's horrible. Th- having someone talk to you, especially if you're in the middle of a, t- a, g- a conversation, and so they're saying, difficult. "Get off that," or "Don't say this," or "Bring this back," and "Bring up that," or "Ask this." It's Ooh. tough. It's tough, especially when there's like tension between you and your producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When oh yeah, because like, then it makes not you hiding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know when I do post-fight interviews, when I first started doing it, they used to talk to me in my ear, like way back in the day. Like sometimes I'd be in mid-sentence and there'd be some fucking clueless shithead yeah. on the other end. You know, it hasn't happened in decades because then the new guys are awesome. The guys that have been doing it for. You know, since but in the '90s when I did it, like there would be a guy talking. I literally had to take the thing out of my ear because I couldn't concentrate on what I was saying. And then they have a meltdown in yeah. the booth when they see you take it out of your ear. They don't know what it's like. You can't. You I literally know. can't form a sentence. First of all, it, when you're doing post-fight interviews, you're doing it in real time, off the cuff, completely ad-libbed, and you're you're asking questions and adjusting based on how the fighter talks to you. And that's and what, what they, they don't understand. Say. Like even a good producer will be like, "Well, I never talk to you while you're talking. I wait until you stop talking." It's like, yeah, but I have to. Fight Fucking hear what the person I'm interviewing yeah. says to me. Yeah, you literally can't hear them. You if someone's talking yeah. in here and you're talking, I don't hear it. No, it's, you can't hear it all. And it's it's the same thing. That show I was on was a, a live show every night, so I get it. Counting down to commercial, the things where you have to keep time. Hey guys, we got to wrap it up. We've mm-hmm. only got a minute left. Great, but like just the talking and the talking, or you should say this. It's like, oh, right. fuck you, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, I'm going to say gross. what I want to say. Well, that's the beautiful thing about the internet. You know, the beautiful thing about the internet and producing your own show and creating your own show is I kind of look at those old shows, the shows that have been around for a long time like that, especially those news type shows where you talked about like the, the uncle and the niece and the, like mm-hmm. that, that kind of weird format where they talk fake and it's everything's seven minutes cut to commercial. I feel like that's a dinosaur. I really don't think that's yeah, going to last. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to last for people sort of of our generation, I use that loosely, mm-hmm. but I think most of middle America is still watching that kind of traditional television. Middle America gets the internet, too. They do. That's um, true. Yeah, I That's think true. middle America is not middle America anymore. I think most of middle America, I mean, they're they're watching what's on because it's always been there, because it's but there. people are way more hip. Yeah, they are. You, but- you tell it when you go on the road. Don't you feel it, Brian, when you go like, to Ohio and all these different places? Like that used to be like a little behind. They're not really behind anymore. There's a lot of fucking slick people that are living in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what's great about everything. I mean, I just got rid of cable for my first time. And for once, I'm like choosing what I want to watch instead of just like, oh, what's on TV right Mm -hmm. now? So you're kind of directing. But are these middle America people picking out stupid shit? Like I want to watch this that, yeah you know what i mean slowly but surely though they're getting more hip no i think so too i think part of the problem though is that i mean you look at the statistics and fox news is still the most watched news network like what does that say about our country well it says first of all they don't really know what the fuck people are watching because the nielsen ratings are ridiculous that's true it's the most antiquated way of figuring out. it's the only thing that's worse is the arbitron when they try to figure out who's listening to radio that shit's ridiculous really like they give you a book and you're supposed to carry it around and write down when you listen to this channel, when you listen to that <laughs> channel. Like, they don't fucking know. Well, and also what ends up happening is that people represent themselves to be different than they are. They're like, I love NPR when they, like, never listen to NPR because they think it looks good. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> well, there's that thing that they do on networks as well where they'll, they'll like, if you're on a talk show especially, they they 
have the ratings based on how many people are watching up into a certain point. Mm-hmm. Like that's why the Tonight Show has a twenty minute first break because fifteen minutes in is when they do their first rating. Yeah. So they don't want to cut the commercial because then you'll change the channel or fuck up the ratings. So they have this twenty minute thing. So everything is geared towards like keep watching us. Look at us. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. We're gonna do something crazy. <laughs> and they just <laughs> it's like sweeps every night. Yeah. They do anything <laughs> to try to get you to hang in there for twenty minutes, and then they'll bring someone on. And that's like what the skirts are all about and that's what why you have all these people that their sensibility is not based on what's the best way to get Kara's thoughts out what's the best way to get Megan's thoughts out the thing is how do I get someone to watch this chick oh completely and also there is a problem I think where people say okay well people in the industry especially when you talk to them about this they go well whatever we just give people what they want so you look at like bad reality TV where there's cat fights and humiliation television and all the shit that you know the Kardashians all the shit that we're like it breaks my heart that this is so popular in America and then people say well that's what the people want and we're just answering to what their needs are and you know we're not actually affecting any sort of social change we're just playing into the hands of, of, of what they're interested in but I say that that's fucking bullshit because we have an illusion of choice in this country like we don't have viable options if i want to watch the news i've either got fox news msnbc or cnn those are the things that are easy for me to find i probably unless i have an expanded cable package don't have al jazeera or bbc world news or Or another option or rt or another option available to me so i'm watching this programming that's no longer even news it's it's just you know fucking advertiser blowjobs and like ratings runoffs yeah you know rt is an interesting example RT is kind of a fucked up channel, though. RT is is very like, in the one hand, there's amazing reporting happening there. And in Mm -hmm. the other hand, it's like answers to the Kremlin. Yeah. It's so weird. Well, Abby Martin's a friend of mine. She's been on the Mm -hmm. show several times. She's great. And she's one of the the rare people that can kind of dress however she wants. Yeah. She dresses. She'll wear slacks. She'll wear, I mean, she's very pretty, but she'll wear... You know, she'll wear something that makes her look hot if that's what she wants to wear or she'll wear something different. But she has a weird situation there, too, where she's criticized Russia, like especially what's going on in the Ukraine. And, you know, and they were like, we're going to send you to the Ukraine. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The fuck you are. Like, no, you're not sending me to the Ukraine. Like (laughs) they like made a a publicly a press statement because she was she was criticizing uh, Putin's administration and what, what what was going on and you know it was very public on television she did this thing and so they said we're going to send her to to Crimea so she can see what it's like on the ground she's like are you out of your fucking mind yeah. I'm not going to a war zone like why did you guys oh, you didn't talk to me like you know this is not happening I'm just telling you right now this is not happening but it's weird it like, is it's a weird place I've, I, I'm working I, for Russia I'm pretty good friends with um, Alona Minkowski and uh, Jenny Churchill who used to work at RT on the Alona show back in the day and then they went over to HuffPost and were at HuffPost Live which is um, where I kind of met them. And that's where you were the science editor. Yeah, that's where I, well I was their science correspondent. There was a science editor in New York I I did all their correspondent like on air work Um, and so I met them there and yeah, they've told me some pretty interesting stories too about RT and a lot of stuff has been leaked lately, like you see it, like the um, reporters there have been more and more open about the fact that there's an obvious agenda at that news network. And I feel like when it comes to Russia reporting, 
you have to take it with a huge grain of salt. Mm. But they do a good job of investigative reporting in other parts of the world. And also what's interesting is everybody that knows about RT primarily knows about it from clips that were released on the Internet. Yeah, they, they're really good about their social media. That's and what's their up. Viral I mean, videos. Yeah. that's a big reality when it comes to all those news shows, too, and all those Tonight Show and talk shows. Their, their whole thing is get a clip that pops. Get oh, completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get something that you can put on television and that, or you know, put on television, but then people will make a clip of it and put it on YouTube, Even, and then everybody trades it. I mean, look at SNL. Obviously, people still watch it uh, if you want to believe Nielsen ratings. But like that show is not good anymore. It hasn't been good in a really long time. But they really reinvented themselves with the digital shorts a few mm-hmm. years ago. And as those were getting released, I mean, there was like this new kind of resurgence of young people being like, "Oh, SNL is actually funny. Yeah. It's not so kind of worn out and old." Yeah, it's the the whole problem with this, and there's a bunch of problems. But trying to do a new show every week and then just yeah. doing it live in front of an audience is a terrible idea. And they don't have enough. It's like make it a half hour show. Like don't yeah. make it an hour because what ends up happening is they have good ideas for clips, and then they just every every single sketch they just run it into the ground. It's just yeah. like they get the joke and then they repeat it ten times. Well, it's also like a super competitive environment. Yeah, and you know Phil Hartman, who is a good friend of mine. We were on news radio together, and he was on Saturday Night Live, and he had nightmare stories. Like, after talking to him about what it was like, the backstabbing and all the the weird behind-the-scenes shit that goes on, people trying to force their their sketches in and other people cock-blocking them, it was just like, ugh. That sounds horrible. The worst thing, the worst way to come up with something creative, like to have this, like, weird competitive environment. Like, no one's supporting it. I mean, I don't know how it is there now, but he told me some nightmare stories. Yeah, and I just I mean I mean there were times when it was really amazing, but yeah. I don't know, it's the also Belushi kind of days not my speed. And, yeah, there was there were some times Eddie Murphy days. There's, you know, I mean, it's you're always going to have talented people who are capable of being funny under extreme circumstances. Yeah. You can put them in a the the worst scenario and they could figure out how to make something funny occasionally. But, but you're right. Like it's it it would be better if it were much looser, but it's TV, you it know. It would be better if they had time. Yeah. Like you need some like time to work month. on a sketch. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. a once a month Saturday Night Live special would probably be a fucking nuclear bomb that would it drop. It would be. That's true. Yeah. But people have these expectations and they want to live up to those expectations and they want to keep up with the ratings and make enough money and ugh. Old, the old school TV model is I, I don't know how much life it has left in it. The problem is that's where the money is still. It's a legacy model. It's all of the investors, all of the advertisers. It's how they know how to do their jobs because they've been doing it for so long that they still pump so much money into that machine. I mean, I see it as a freelancer. When I get offered a TV job, it always pays better than a web job across yeah. the board. That's where the money is still. In, in, in And that's where my agent is trying to push me. I do a lot of web work because I like new media and I like that I can be free on it. But the truth is we're still in this kind of legacy world with, with old school media. And until those large corporations start to understand new media, I think that you're going to see this weird inflated bubble where all the money still stays there, but nobody's even fucking watching anymore. Yeah, it's adjusting. It's adjusting slowly, but it's 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 definitely uh, in this transitionary period yeah. where pe- more people are kind of realizing, hey, isn't everybody on a line? Everyone's online, right? Yeah. So isn't aren't the same people that are online also watching television shows? Like we can reach them in both ways. Like it's and then it'll slowly shift. In my opinion, it's going to shift to the internet almost entirely. 
I, I really don't see the only benefit that I could see in networks is things like Game of Thrones, where you need massive budgets to put on these spectacular special effects. And yeah, but even film you're, you're seeing Netflix Ireland. starting to do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think you will be able yeah. to see. And, and what happens when those production companies or when HBO rolls out and it becomes a standalone app where you don't need the cable provider anymore, right. then fuck, that's online too. Yeah. I mean, the only things that I appointment view anymore at all on television are. Um, let's see, Masters of Sex. What is that? Um, it's on Showtime. Oh, is that the Kinsey thing? Well, it's it's Masters and Johnson. So different researchers, but yeah, sex researchers from the fifties. So is this like that movie? Was who is it? Was it Liam Neeson? Who the fuck played is that? The Kinsey, Kinsey movie? Yeah. So yeah. so the, Kinsey and then Ma- I don't remember, but Kinsey and Masters and Johnson are probably the most cited sex research historical sex researchers in you know psychology courses where you learn about sexual behavior. But Masters and Johnson, a really interesting thing because Masters was an OBGYN, Johnson was his research assistant, and they fucked. Whoa. A lot. And that's a show. Yeah. And, and so they got they were the source of a lot of their research. Whoa. Yeah, and it's Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Sheen. <laughs> it's really good. Is it, it It's a great show. That's interesting. So is it is it a pervy show? Is it kind of like a Well, there's a lot Are of they trying to be like scientific about their sex? Both. Yeah. Well, mm. yeah, they totally are, but it's a new field at this point. Nobody has thought to investigate like sexual response. So they are the first people to detail what happens when you have an orgasm. They're the first people to try and take measurements of female orgasm. Like all these really nobody thought that that was legitimate research at the time so he gets thrown out of multiple institutions and he's always getting in trouble it is pretty fascinating when we think about it It wasn't until the 20th century that people started researching sex oh and and, human sexuality and even then it was all men like nobody gave a shit about a female response that was totally secondary like because this is what happens this is another little feminist um uh soapbox is that feminist though no i I I have an issue with that that term feminism i know it's kind of like it's the term feminism, all it really means is that I support equal rights for women, mm-hmm. you know. So in, in that sense of the term, yes, I'm very much a feminist, but so are you. So it's probably everybody in this room yeah, and in most that of the people of listening. Term, for sure. And so this is the thing. When you don't have female physicians and you don't have female researchers because the institutions don't allow them, then you don't have a female pers- research perspective. So all of a sudden, all of your research subjects are men because nobody thinks that it – matters to research what happens to a woman's mm-hmm. body yeah and it took decades <clears throat> for research on female sexual response to catch up to research on male sexual response which is crazy because females are the child bearers yeah it's pretty bizarre i know well pretty bizarre when you think about the, all the different things that used to be used on women like that women used to go to a doctor to get manually manipulated yeah. to orgasm because they were like suffering from hysteria. Yeah, hysterica yeah, hyster- was it, hysteria. Yeah, hysterectomy, uh-huh. hysteria. They yeah. were all connected. Like that was the idea. And you know, and women would go to hospitals for um, exhaustion. That was like a common thing. To, exhaustion. I, I, she's hospitalized for exhaustion. Whoa. Which is celebrities still do that. Depression. At least they say <laughs> yeah, they say that. But it's like it's either depression or substance abuse. Right. That's what they used to call it then, exhaustion. And yeah. it was only women? It wasn't men that were going to... Men would sometimes too, but it was very common for housewives to go in for, for exhaustion. exhaustion. Wow. what they do to them? Just jerk them off? Just they might have. Rub them? They might have. 
And they probably gave them like early versions of psychiatric medications. And they basically let them leave whatever stressful environment they were in. Get away from the babies that were making you depressed. Get away from the husband. Go be on your own for a bit. Read a fucking book. Do you, you think it's, it's fair to think that as life becomes easier and as like society and civilization is more uh, like goods are more accessible, it's easier to get food, it's easier to get water, it's easier to get services, and then slowly but surely things sort of equalize in terms of uh, the more aggressive sex, males paying more attention to the needs of the female. But in the old days, mm. when things were much harsher, people lived less, they have a shorter lifespan, the world was a darker place, then it was more sexist. Do you think it was more like men were just like, look, these are tough times, fuck off, bitch, you know, I'm going to get mine? I think it's probably both. I think that there's definitely you look at kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you've ever studied um, psychology, <clears throat> you've Lizzie probably. Lohan hospitalized for exhaustion. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Um, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and it's like this pyramid. It's like the mm-hmm. food pyramid, but it's right. the needs pyramid. And at the bottom are things like food and water and shelter. Like when you're concerned about food and water and shelter, you're not concerned about things like love and um, friendship. And then right. as you get to the top, it's things like self-actualization and, and blah, blah, blah. So I think that there is a component of, yes, if you're just struggling to survive – contemplating or waxing philosophical about you know civil liberties and things like that Mm. it's not in your so you may be very instinctual and you may be aggressive because of that or or for whatever reason you may see kind of patriarchal lines that are drawn in the sand and, and some sexism and some violence but i think on top of that maybe that would always be the case so long as women didn't have a voice I'm not sure. I'm not sure if just moving to the future and I'm not sure if it has a function if it's a function of people having more access to food and goods and services or if it's really a function of women because what happened was women were mothers and men said okay mothers bring life this is something that we should respect and we should honor and this was a historical norm for a very long time. And then as, you know, these kind of hunter-gatherer societies moved into more agrarian societies and started to form cultural structures, men realized, I can overpower that bitch. Like, I have physical strength, and I can physically put this woman in her place. And as they realized that there was a power differential between them, that men were physically stronger, I think that's where a lot of patriarchal wisdom comes from, is that men are physically stronger than women. Do you think that was in, that was that was realized not until there was agriculture, not until there was cities? And I think that that was a big part of it. Don't you think that that would be a big part of it everywhere? I mean, in all primitive cultures? Well, if you are a hunter-gatherer type, and so you're living in a very small tribe, and you're concerned about kinship or the welfare of your children, then I think that there's a certain amount of respect and honor that you are going to pay to your wife. But why does that go away with agriculture? Why does that go away with cities? It's not so much agriculture as it is all of the things that come along with agriculture, which is maybe political power, which is starting to stratify and have jobs. And and no longer are you making your own clothes, making your own shoes, doing your own... um, hunting, doing your own cooking, all of a sudden now you're a cobbler and you're, you know, a butcher and you're whatever. And so 
people have to depend on one another for goods and services and they have to say, okay, I'll trade you this for that. And then money comes into play and bartering. And all of a sudden, whereas it was a lot more egalitarian before, where everybody kind of had a strong role because they were taking care of themselves or their very small groups, their family groups, now all of a sudden they have a place in society. And that's, I think, where you really start to see uh, subjection of women is because men start to develop power within societies. And if you look back historically, there are no known societies that were matriarchal societies, but you do see in smaller kind of tribal communities more matriarchal um, ideology, more kind of honoring and worshiping of mother figures and mother gods. But Isn't every it, time there's a society, it becomes patriarchal historically throughout all every time. time. Every time. There's no Greeks, such thing Romans, as those. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. There's no such thing as those Amazonian like women tribe that, you know, people talk about like the Amazonian women. That's just dudes that's, jerk off fantasies. Yeah. And that's not a real thing. Like Giant women are going to take care of them. Yeah. It's a myth. It's a myth. Stuff so, them in their vaginas. That's, so and I don't know. I can't say that that's a cause of it. But those things are highly correlated. But do you think that that evens out once civilization and society becomes more complex and has see I, my my point was that scarcity makes people desperate. And when people get desperate, they victimize not just women, but they victimize weaker Weakness. men as well. Yeah, exactly. Anyone weak. It's like, you know, who who are the people that we historically look to for like heroic figures in times of, of great stress? People that pull themselves up by their bootstraps and go out there and kick some fucking ass. People with big muscles. Too. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's such a brutish and such an underdeveloped way to value strength, to only value strength in like, I punch harder. Right. Because there's other forms of strength. But you're right. When people are desperate, people know that, the you know, think about if you're having an argument with another guy or if, so, if something comes to a head, even at work, wherever, and you're having an argument and you can't agree with each other and you start to get more and more frustrated. What's the way in every film, in every um, uh, book, what's the way that it finally gets settled? You roll up your sleeves. And you get in a physical altercation with each other, which is just not a form of strength or not a form of um, of settling a score that's common in like fe- in females. It happens. Have Don't you never watched back- Basketball Wives? Yeah, it, it happens. They throw down. They, they do. Hair. They throw down. But it's, that's like the worst of the worst, too. Counter, that's like not normal. It's counterintuitive, but the best way to avoid that with men is martial arts. Get men in a situation where they train and they compete against each other on a regular basis. They don't have this need to, to dominate each other the way you It's see. true, because I do think that it's a bit stupid to... To, to just completely ignore the role that things like testosterone play in gender dimorphism, like in female-male differences in humans and, and other higher-order mammals. Like, testosterone is a is a, a chemical that actually is highly linked to things like aggression and feeling tension and having this need to release that in some way. And we have less of it. We have significantly less of it. And some women are more aggressive and some women are completely passive and are never aggressive that way. But there is a sif- significant difference between males and females. And testosterone is a big reason for that. So being able to get that aggression out, whether it's on a heavy bag or whether it's through martial arts or whatever exercises you use, I think is... It, it's irresponsible to think that that's not part of the equation. 
Yeah, it definitely is for a man coming from a male point of view. Mm-hmm. I know it makes a significant difference with me whether or not I can release it or not. But it's also the just com- doing martial arts and being involved in something that gives you an understanding of what physical confrontation is really all about. It, it doesn't. It's not this scary thing that every man has to like puff his chest up to avoid happening or or you go into it completely ignorantly thinking it's like a movie like you're going to sock some guy and that's going to be the end of it and meanwhile you throw a punch at him and he moves his head and you're like oh shit this guy actually knows how to fight now I'm fucked because yeah. now I tried to hit somebody that is not going to let me hit him and they're going to beat me up you're right a lot of that I think comes from fear and it comes from ignorance it also mean- comes from other ridiculous these media depictions of what happens when people hit each other one of the things that drives me fucking crazy and I really wanted to talk to you about this because mm-hmm. I wanted to get into depression, is mm-hmm. uh, head trauma. Like, there's so many goddamn movies where someone hits someone in the head and they fall down, they get up and they rub their head and they're out cold, and then they go out and they fucking have a, a crazy fist fight with a uh, hundred people, or you know, they, they they make it like they're back to normal. Like or, they get shut off and they come back to normal and yeah. they're fine. Or a guy is like, you know, this like great martial artist is is in a fight with like ten other dudes, right? And then he's like punching and he's kicking, and then he does that thing where he like headbutts. Like tons of guys, like cracks his skull against the skull of like multiple people in a row and is like in no way affected by it. Well, headbutts, it's really a weird thing, but the way to do it correctly, it actually is effective because I'm sure it's effective. You're using this part of your head, your forehead, Mm -hmm. which is a really hard part, and you smash someone in the nose. And your nose kind of gives in. Yeah, it's so gross. Yeah, but it works. It works like crazy. I wish we had a shot of Red Band just then. When he well, there's a great video of a woman knocking a guy out in a bar. This uh, there was some sort of a bar fight, mm-hmm. and this this guy was like involved in a fight with this woman's boyfriend. And the guy grabs the woman, and the woman grabs the guy's shirts and slams him in the head. Right on his nose, and the guy goes out cold and goes limp. And it's hilarious because it's like this little woman and this big man, and she knocks him out with her head. Yeah, but that's not, that, they never show that in the movie. They never hit him in the nose. They hit him like in the same part of their head. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't well, do you that. Can you're just gonna you're gonna scramble your brain. If you're Samoan, you <laughs> if you're like one of those dudes with an extra big head, you can get away with that. But for most people, you smash them in the nose. I mean, you probably don't want to do that effective. too much. We're even seeing that there are. Is um, this that video? Yeah. This, watch this girl okay. headbutt this dude. It's fucking hilarious. Because there's all this shit going on, and this girl just grabs this dude and KOs him. See if you can cut to it, because it's kind of a long video, if I remember correctly. There's like a lot of shit going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Big bar fight. Oh, just isolate oh. it, because this is... <gasps> is he punching her? No, I think, yeah. Oh, my God. Dude, that's insane. Yeah, I don't know uh, when in this video. I don't think this is the same video. I think this is a different one. Ugh. Yeah, this isn't the same video. That's just gross that, the, to uh, see. That, the other video was indoors. That one, that one's outdoors. But whatever. Um, but yeah, like even, you know, they're finding that soccer players, oh, yeah. just the multiple, the movement of like hitting a ball mm-hmm. with your head over and over and over and over and over causes mild concussive injuries. So yeah, cracking people in the skulls a lot is probably... Yeah, it's not to good. be avoided. Well, you know, and me, I've, obviously, I come from this background of not just constantly doing it my whole life, but being around it my whole life. Yeah. I've been around so many guys getting hit in the head, and I've I've seen them from the beginning of their career, and then I see them at the end of their career, and I see a significant decline. 
and how they communicate and how they, I'm sure how they feel. They seem like old men when they're in their mm-hmm. like 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And depression is a real issue. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up is because yeah. uh, my friend Mark Gordon, Dr. Mark Gordon, who's uh, an expert in traumatic brain injury, and he works a lot with uh, soldiers and athletes that have had significant brain trauma, and they have uh, a lot of issues with their hormones afterwards. Mm. The pituitary gland Mm -hmm. is extremely sensitive. And he wrote a piece connecting Robin Williams with depression, not just based on a a lot of factors. I mean, Robin had a lot of things going on. He he obviously had substance abuse issues. He obviously... um, uh, he had the Parkinson's issue, mm-hmm. which he was also taking medication for Parkinson's, which has been connected to depression. But he also had heart surgery. And um, his Dr. Gordon's connection was that Robin Williams, having had this major heart valve repra- replacement, which uh, entails many hours of anesthesia, lowered blood, blood pressure, mm-hmm. and the literature speaks of post-cardiac surgery depression in over 100 publications, and that the prolonged surgery with low blood pressure, they believe, precipitates a perform a form of Sheehan syndrome, which is the loss of important brain hormones. Oh, interesting. Additionally, there's an increase in reverse T3 and a decrease in T3, which can cause uh, relative hypothyroidism that's mm-hmm. also associated with depression. And Mark Gordon wrote this whole piece about it, and he's saying that what people have to consider more is like when you take someone into uh, a situation where you're fixing their heart, you're, you're all, you also have to realize that there's going to be some adverse effect. The whole body's going to react to this. Yeah. And it's not just going to be about, look, your heart's fixed. You know, why are you so sad? You know, like his hormones are fucking completely out of whack now. And yeah. that could have played a factor in this that was ignored. Well, and that's something that I think that we've historically had this really weird approach to medicine, which I think is kind of a secondary effect of thinking scientifically. And um, obviously, I my background is in neuroscience. I worked as a scientist for many years. And I am very much a scientific thinker. And I'm all about the scientific method. But I think that we sometimes are at fault when we're a little bit too reductionistic in our views. And so if you look at the history of modern medicine, of sci- uh, evidence-based medicine, what ends up happening is that we look at a problem and we try to fix the problem. And we look at it as if you can somehow cut that piece of the person's physiology completely out of them, solve it, and then put it right back in. And it doesn't have any effect on anything else in their bodies. I mean, you look at medication, right? Um, any, any form of pharmaceutical. They all have side effects. If you think about what a side effect is, it, it comes down to how medication works. Medicine is a molecule. It's some sort of molecule that fits in a receptor somewhere in your body. And the idea is that you want it to have really high efficacy. So let's say that I'm somebody who has a problem with um, blood pressure, for example. Or actually, let's just jump into depression because I've been talking about this a lot lately around um, Robin Williams. I had Paul Gilmartin on my podcast just last week to talk about that. He, he hosts the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast and has really great insights into um, mental illness. And I, of course, publicly have dealt with depression most of my life. I take medication every day. I go to therapy every week. I'm very open about it. Isn't that for a lot of people, they would look at you, especially people that don't have any issues with depression. Mm-hmm. They look at you, obviously, very intelligent, beautiful, young. Why would you be depressed? Mm-hmm. Guys are probably tripping over themselves trying to date you. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're, you're obviously very successful in pursuing intellectual pursuits. 
why would you be depressed? Exactly. Like, a because, lot of people are like, why? Which... Because a lot of people don't understand the difference between depression and sadness. And they don't understand that depression is a, a biological illness. Yeah, they don't think of it. In t- they also don't think of it in terms of like people look at it in terms of like, well, you've got all these sums. Like, exactly. look, you've got all this, these numbers. Look, these all stack and up. And that almost can can make it worse for certain people. I mean, you look at somebody like Robin Williams. He had so much going for him, right? Yes. He was famous. He was loved. He had all this money. How could he be depressed? He didn't have the problems that you or I have. And you know what? Then you have this extra layer of guilt. You have this extra layer of shame, this extra layer of why the fuck am I still depressed? No matter how much success I get, no matter mm-hmm. how much money I make, no matter how much people write me letters and say that they love me and, and whatever, I can't seem to f- to beat this feeling inside of me, this constellation of symptoms, because it's not coming from that. It's coming from your brain. And is it? I mean, I, I don't suffer from depression, but I have had many friends who do. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've always wondered what it's because it seems to be that when you go to a doctor and they start treating it, whether they treat it with medication or they try to adjust your diet and, mm-hmm. and, and, and prescribe exercise first, that there's no like one simple fix. Not at all. And everybody's completely different. And people get people get upset about that because I think it goes back to, to kind of what I was talking about before, which is a meandering way to, to, okay, so again, to go back to this idea of a drug, you take a drug, let's say I take an antidepressant, my antidepressant specifically is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SSRI that's called um, citalopram, that's the off brand, I think it's Celexa, um, is the brand name. I take that, it binds to my serotonin receptors in my brain. And it allows me to dump more serotonin into the synapse, the the gap between two brain cells so that I always have more available. It basically tells my brain that I need more serotonin, so I make more serotonin available to myself. It's a a reuptake inhibitor. And so, um, or it, sorry, it keeps more serotonin in in the gap um, instead of sucking it back into the cells. So I always have more available to me. Now, It's a molecule. It's got a shape, just like anything out there. It has geometry. So it binds to this specific receptor in the brain because it's got a similar shape to that. There are other things in your body that are similarly shaped. And so what ends up happening is when you take a drug, the specificity of the drug is only based on whether or not the key fits in a lock somewhere in your body. But let's say that you had hundreds of thousands, millions of locks available to you and one key, and you started going through, you'd be able to stick that in a bunch of locks. Some of them, it might even turn, but it would would fit in the lock of multiple locks hanging on that wall. So what ends up happening is I take this drug, it binds in my brain, it does what it's supposed to do in my brain, but it also maybe does other shit, like makes me really fucking tired or it makes it so I don't want to have sex as often it's a side effect and the reason that you have a side effect is because there's other parts of your body that the drug binds to it's the same thing with medicine like you were saying you operate on somebody's heart the heart is connected to other things it's it it's the source of blood flow throughout your body it is connected to hormone levels there's all sorts of things that can happen when you put somebody under under anesthesia when you cut them open when you uh you know you you cause an immune response an inflammatory response their your body is a holistic thing and so when you start jacking with certain things other things are going to happen that doesn't mean you th- should throw the baby out with the bathwater, but medicine is a risk-benefit analysis always. But how do they find the r- – it seems to me that they find the right medication by experimentation. 
that they try it. And is that just it's because... the only way. It's because we don't have any tests. I can't... You can't go... Um, you, as a doctor, you can't come to me, stick a needle in my spinal cord, take out my cerebrospinal fluid, and measure how much serotonin I have in it. I wish you could. I wish I could take some sort of a blood test or I could, you know pee in a cup and then you could analyze that pee and say you're low on serotonin you need an ssri that would be what works for you because other people's depression comes from problems with dopamine comes from problems with norepinephrine or some combination thereof but there's no test for it it fucking sucks there's no test for it and so what ends up happening is you have to play uh musical chairs you try a drug maybe just the first drug i tried for ant uh when i decided to finally go on antidepressants fucked me up so bad i took an snDRI a selective serotonin norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor i was so fucking depressed i couldn't function and we decided let's throw the book at it let's take the drug of all drugs the monster drug that does everything and i couldn't sleep for a week i felt like i was on straight up crank like on crystal did you get a lot done I quit smoking. <laughs> no, seriously, I quit smoking. It was awesome. That's okay. when I quit smoking. Well, that's an important point. Uh-huh. Smoking. Smoking is <laughs> terrible for your body. Horrible. Did you do anything to try to naturally stimulate your body to produce more serotonin? Did you try a lot of exercise? Did you, oh, adju- yeah. did you adjust your diet? Did, mm-hmm. But you didn't quit smoking. I did. I mean, ultimately. When you got on the drugs. If but for, you didn't try. I was only on the drug for a week. So as soon as I got off the drug again, I immediately wanted to smoke again. But at that point, I pushed through it. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm at my lowest. I was at my lowest point I've ever been at. So I was like, fuck it. Can't get any worse. And I did. I quit smoking. And it's been a couple of years. But I did. I tried. But the truth is, this is why addiction research is so important. This is why researchers go into the lab with a bunch of mice or whatever. And they feed them a bunch of cocaine. And they, you know, do these different kind of um, experiments where you, you've heard of the famous experiment where you have the mouse in the cage. And it's got a bar pressing paradigm. Mm-hmm. So it can push the bar. It gets coke. And then, like, it just fucking does that until it dies. Like, it, like there's food right right next to it and it's like no i want more coke and then it just you know dies and so obviously there's something happening this is a natural phenomenon because mice don't have value judgments they're not thinking about this from a religious perspective they're not saying "Mm, i don't know maybe i should stop doing this coke and maybe exercise a little more and that'll give me the same kind of high it overwhelms everything it's such a strong addiction does nicotine have the same sort of addictive properties nicotine is almost more addictive nicotine is nicotine natural in a natural form is not like uh, nicotine as far as like pipe I, smoke. Or... I do think nicotine is still addictive, even if you're talking about like vaping it or something like that. No, I, I'm talking about like like traditional methods of it, like the way they would smoke tobacco in a pipe or in a cigar or something. It's not as addictive. I don't think it's as addictive, but it's still addictive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still it's it's the the nicotine is the molecule that's studied in laboratories. It's not the tar. It's not the shit that comes in the papers. Now, that's what like has much more carcinogenic properties, but nicotine itself is highly addictive. And that's the molecule that's studied in in research. It's pure nicotine. But isn't nicotine itself, doesn't it actually have some medicinal benefits? It does. It's actually neuroprotective, so it can protect against Parkinson's. Wow. So if you smoke, you won't get Parkinson's? Well, I wouldn't say that. But there is some evidence in the lab that animals that were given nicotine um, had a lower incidence rate of Parkinson's. Is it is it dangerous in like the form that people take it as far as like gum or things along those much lines? Less. Much less. It's much less dangerous. But the goal still would be to get off of nicotine because the reason they're chewing the gum is because they're still addicted to it. But is there a way to take a small amount of it that gives you those neuroprotective properties but it's not dangerous? Possibly. I'm. On, I'm but I, I think it would be important for us to see more research to see how... how 
you know, again, it's a risk benefit analysis. Like, is it really that beneficial? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard to say. What's the dose response curve? How much would you have to take for it to be beneficial? The the thing about depression that Mm -hmm. is fascinating to me is that there are, are some correlations between how well your life is going. Do you have Hugely. good relationships? Yeah. Do you, are you happy with what you choose to do with your day? I had a friend um, who was uh, he was on like some serious uh, SSRIs and they changed his life. They got him. He, he quit his business. He quit his job, rather started his own business, got involved in a relationship. And then once he got to a really good place, he slowly weaned himself off the antidepressants. And now he's great. And yeah. It, and that happens immediate. to a lot of people. And so I think that there's different. What we have to understand, too, is, of course, all psychiatric disorders are spectrum disorders, right? There's really extreme examples and there's barely any examples. And if anybody who's ever taken a psych course or who's studied, you know, if you were a psych major in college, you know that as you study the dsm four, which is like it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that they use um, in psychiatry and psychology. It's basically the big Bible of all the things you can be diagnosed with. The more you study it, the more you're like, I have that. Oh, I have that. Oh, I totally fucking have that. And mm. you realize everybody has... Everybody can convince themselves that they have these. It's like WebMD. You know what I mean? So it's only once it is sufficiently detrimental to your life that it affects your relationships, it affects your ability to work, it affects your health, whatever the case may be. And usually within the DSM, there are maybe like eight things. And it's like you have to have five out of these eight things. And so anybody can read it and go, oh, I felt depression before. But what they don't realize is there is a difference between depression and sadness. There's also a difference between parody depression, so depression that lasts years, decades, and the type of depression that people get that's directly linked to life events. Dog and that's, dies. Your dog you dies. Like shit. You look well, a big one. You lose your right. fucking job. Like we've seen so right. many documentaries lately about this as the economy took a downturn, people lose their job and then they end up committing suicide mm-hmm. because they can't it's like this cascade of awfulness. That's a really common one. Um, you know, family member dies. You have a stillborn or you have an abortion or you you have a baby, a healthy baby. Postpartum depression is incredibly common. And in that case, that's much more common that people can take meds. They can do all these things. And once they get back to where they were before that horrible life event, they're OK to get off off the meds. Some people are able to get their depression managed without medication perfectly well but it's is, some is people it, aren't is the different reactions that different people have to different medication is it because their depression has a different source or is it just a, a biodiversity thing i think it's more of a biodiversity thing than a source thing i mean a source is hard to say so depression is both when you think about it well brain and mind are the same thing you know most modern neuroscientists say that brain and mind are two sides of the same coin that mind is just an emergent property of brain nobody's a dualist anymore they don't think that you can like heal the mind and it has no effect on the brain because it's the same fucking thing so there are you know some people's depression comes from the fact that their dopamine levels are are not healthy or their norepinephrine levels are not healthy or whatever the fuck but i think the the common view of depression now is that there's some sort of biological difference in your brain. And oftentimes that's either caused or it develops out of childhood or early life experiences where, you know, you have some sort of trauma or you have some sort of um, 
development, you have some sort of, you know, interaction with family, whatever the case may be. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you were molested as a child. It can literally just be like you didn't feel um, loved or whatever the case may be. And and you've got this brain difference combined with this emotional experience. And what ends up happening, because when you're very young, your brain is very plastic. So when you're very young, you're learning skills that are going to last you the rest of your life. And you're actually building your brain architecture. Certain neurons are connecting and disconnecting and reconnecting and pruning out the tree, the beautiful tree that is all of the cells in your brain is getting pruned when you're young. And if you're depressed when you're young, and you're experiencing those kinds of things when you're young, you're going to prune a tree that's prone to depression as you age, because you're going to keep reinforcing those neuronal connections. That's why therapy is so important. Meds in and of themselves are never going to get you in a place where your depression is really well managed. It's going to get you in a place where therapy is going to be working better for you. Meds are going to be an immediate and necessary interventional strategy so that you're not crying or you're not trying to kill yourself or you're not whatever your symptoms of So you can actually fucking get out of bed to work on yourself. That's what meds are there for me. Meds keep me from staying in bed all day. That's that variable, though. Finding the right counselor has got to be it's incredibly t- difficult. It's tough. It's like I, I always liken it to the women who are listening to the podcast. I liken it unto when you were first deciding to go on birth control. <clears throat> A lot of women will go um, to their gynecologist when they're 15, 16, 17 and say, I want to go on birth control. And they'll give them orthotricycline or whatever the pill, the regular old pill, and they'll be fine. A lot of women will take the pill the first time and it'll make them really sick. Like every time they take the pill, it makes them want to throw up or it gives them cramps or something's weird about it. It affects their – and they go, oh, this drug doesn't work for me. And they go, oh, fuck, okay. Let's try one with lower levels of estrogen or progesterone or let's try the ring or the Depo-Provera shot or maybe you need an IUD. I was like that. It took me multiple times to find the right drug. And I think it's the same thing with therapy. I think it's the same thing with psychiatric medicines. It's not – we're mon- not monolithic, so the same combination isn't going to work for everybody. And the truth is if that makes you afraid of modern medicine or if it makes you think that psychiatry is woo or something like that, it's the same thing as cancer in many ways. There's so many parallels. Cancer is not one disease. It's a spectrum of diseases. If I got diagnosed with breast cancer and you got diagnosed with breast cancer and we both went in with our diagnosis the same day, our oncologist would give us different treatments because we would have different genetic markers. We would respond differently to different types of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy means chemical therapy. It's a really big umbrella term for all the different kinds of cancer treatments that are available. Maybe you would get more radiation. Maybe I would need surgery, but your metastasis would make it so that surgery wasn't a viable option. It's it's a spectrum disease, and psychiatric illness are the same way. The variable, though, of the counselor has to be kind of weird. It right? is weird. It's Just a bit trying weird. trying to find someone that you can confide in wholeheartedly. And, and it takes time, a yeah, really long and time. And finding the correct sex, right? Whether or not some men do better with women counselors. I, I have a male counselor. Um, like, I would never... It's funny. I have a male therapist, but I have a female gynecologist. Like, I would never in a million years let a dude, like, put speculums in me and, like, dig around in my cervix. But I'm totally comfortable with a male therapist. I have a friend who went to a male gynecologist, and the male gynecologist texted her and asked her out. Oh, that's so creepy. 
Yes. Oh my god! But she's kind of a flirt. She might have put it out there. Oh, uh, that's and crazy. Then... That reminds me of what's the um, Judd Apatow? She pushed forward. What's the yeah, Judd she, Apatow like, movie? A little while he was getting in there. Ew, ew, ew! No, you would never. You, you have obviously never had a pap. You would I, never. No, mo- I haven't. But some, <laughs> some girls are dirty bitches. Um, but in no, a good what's, way. What's the Judd Apatow movie with um, uh, Knocked Up? Uh-huh. You know, and, and she goes to the doctor, and it's her sister's doctor, and he's all like, oh, I recognize you now. Like, when he puts her in this, it's like so gross. <laughs> yeah, having yeah, some dude dig around your cooter. I could never. I just could never. I'm yeah. glad that I lit. I'm glad it's 2014, and there are plenty of female OBGYNs available. Because back in the day, you had a male gynecologist. Right. Because there were only dude doctors. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that would be really weird. Uh-huh. And even for a guy to have a woman doctor that's checking out your genitals that would be odd as well you think so would you have you you've had yeah. a female doctor before right like grab your balls while you cough that kind no of thing? i no. wish oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's the issue like yeah. the man would be the predator like that the doctor the female doctor would have to deal with especially if it was an attractive female doctor would have to deal with the dude oh being kind of excited about uh, a woman checking out his balls I'm not sure keep doing it I'm not Ugh. sure if you yeah. found it yeah that she'd probably have to deal with that I'm a bit sure. oh, for fuck yeah <laughs> sure well there's um you know i was talking to a friend about this uh the other day and he uh is a pretty philosophical older guy and he was um He's been through two divorces, and he was talking about how sex-starved so many people are. Hmm. And, like, you're dealing with all these scenarios where you're like, oh, this guy was a creep, and this, you know, this woman is ridiculous. And there are people out there that no one's touching. And they are so hungry just to be held. And I I mean, this is a minor story, but when I was, uh, when I first came to California, I didn't have any friends, came here from New York, and I, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy because I, I didn't enjoy acting. I didn't enjoy being around actors, and I didn't have any friends. And I wasn't didn't have a girlfriend, didn't have any dates. And um, I I got a hug from this girl on a set, and uh, I'll never forget that feeling of that hug because it wasn't like a sexual hug. It was a friend gave me a hug, and uh, when she gave me the hug, it was like my my level went, but not sexual. Mm-hmm. It was like love. Like I got, I got touched. You got a love boner. I got touched for the first <laughs> time in like a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you need this. Like yeah. this is important for people. It's totally important for people. There's all sorts of hormones, like a cascade of hormones that you set off when you are affiliative, when you're, you know, close mm-hmm. to somebody else. And it's absolutely necessary. And kind of going back to what we were talking about, about aggression, like a male-female difference, I also feel strongly that many men have a deep need that's slightly different than than women, that our sexual needs are much more affiliative and emotional. And there is some physiological basis for female sexual need. Don't get me wrong. Like any girl can tell you that she's had this craving, this this passionate feeling where she's like, I just need to come or I just need to you know, have sex with somebody. But with men, there's literally a backup of fluid that you have to release. That's a very different physiological thing than women. And again, that goes back to testosterone. So the same thing as you were saying, MMA can be really helpful for clearing the mind and for lowering your your base levels of aggression. 
I think coming does the same thing. I think it's healthy for guys to jerk off if they're not having a lot of sex because guys can get pent up and be aggressive because they're not coming enough. Well, they also get desperate. I that to, too, yeah. I had a joke about it. It was, it was a whole descriptive called jerk off first, then think about it. Mm. Like anything you're thinking about doing in life, any weird decision you're going to make, you're getting married, that's good. Jerk off first, <laughs> then think about yeah. it. You know, you're going to decide to do this. You're going to buy that car. You're going to do this. You're going to buy those clothes. Jerk off first and tell me if you really want to wear alligator shoes. <laughs> like, what, what are you, why are you wearing those? And are you that, trying to attract a certain person? Like, And what, that's the thing. We talk about the little head and people, guys thinking with that mm-hmm. head or whatever. There is a really big neuronal link there. There are hormones that affect your dick the same way they affect your brain. And so you can't pretend, again, that your cock is somehow completely disconnected from your emotions, from your feelings. Well, if it's you looked not. at it, and also if you looked at it if, objectively, if you looked at the human beings on this planet as like a giant mathematical equation, you would say, okay, why are there so fucking many of them? Well, because there's this intense need to breed. Mm-hmm. And this intense need to breed was back when it was really difficult to stay alive. You know, we are essentially the same organism that used to get cut down by each other, by animals, predators, natural illnesses, yeah, disease, injuries. We, we've only been around for 200,000 years in our in our current form. Homo sapiens as a species. So before 200,000 years ago, we're talking about something that was different enough from us, evolutionarily speaking, to be a different species. Homo sapiens, 200,000 years old. That's long enough for a little bit of evolution. Yes, we are. We have changed in some ways, but that's not long enough for that much evolution. In many ways, biologically, psychologically, evolutionarily speaking, you're right. We are the same organism that was like crawling out of the trees. Yeah, extremely primitive. And again, when you also talk about the biodiversity, there's some folks that are just more fucking primitive today. Totally. Or, or more animalistic or more kinetic. Than- and, and, and just the range is so massive when we talk about what is, quote, normal and what is hyper and what is hypo. So many people are so different. And that's why it's cool to see when people actually manage to partner up or whatever sexual um, or emotional partnerships make sense for them, whether they're monogamous or polygamous, whether they're, um, you know, gay, straight, somewhere in, in between. It's so cool when you see people that make it work because they're on the same page when there's so many differences that exist out there. When two people go, you're awesome or three or four, whatever, and they go, you're awesome. I'm into you. We're into the same stuff. We abide by the same rules we have the same sexual proclivities and it works like how fucking cool is that because there's so many combinations out there when those magnets those two ends of the magnet kind of find each other in that way it's it's pretty dope like it's not that common well even like when you were talking earlier about molecules and receptors mm-hmm. it's almost like the, the you have to have the right fit yeah you, you know? totally and do you also have to be a good molecule yeah you know it's like how many people truly have their shit together to the point where anybody would want to be with them and so many people are so goddamn codependent and so fucked up mm-hmm. that they they can't attract anyone because their own biology their psychology their the, the mix that makes them a person is just so chaotic like you can't expect to be happy in a relationship because you're not happy alone. Yeah, there has to be equity in a relationship. Like you can't suck the light. You can't be like a vampire in a relationship. You have to offer somebody just as much as you get from them. And you have to be, like you said, very standalone. I mean, that's a common um, theme for me in therapy is this conversation about 
if I am in a relationship, feeling very confident and comfortable because I have like an insane fear of commitment. I because I'm so used to thinking about a relationship as if it's a um, a prison sentence, and I've been really relearning what it means to be in a relationship with my therapist and how the idea of living for now is a healthier way to look at life. Like, I don't have to think about hardcore future kinds of conversations. Like, if I'm comfortable with myself right now and I can be comfortable with a partner right now and not have all this, like, sense of intense obligation, that's where that codependent stuff comes from. And that's what I think is so incredibly unhealthy in a relationship. It's like I'm going to bring my best self to the table and hopefully I'll find a partner that does the same thing instead of needing a partner, which is a common motivation for people to get in relationships. I need somebody else. I can't handle it on my own. Well, Well, then you're not going to end up working it out. There's all those variables, too, like the sexual variable, the emotional variable. There's so many different things that are going on. And then it's almost like, okay, I found this water hole. I can't leave. I finally found water. I was alone. Like my experience of going several weeks without being hugged and then being hugged like, oh, and that was just a friend. It was like someone on the set. The difference between that and someone who's gone years without a relationship that really worked and you finally have one that works and you fuck it up because you're too goddamn clingy and too crazy. Where are you? Where are you? Why aren't you home? I'm texting you. Why aren't you texting me back immediately? And like that kind of shit is what makes me run out the door. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about my quote unquote fear of commitment. What it really is, is it's it's an intense feeling of um, stress when I feel obligated to somebody else. Mm. So so. In the healthiest relationships I've been in, they're the relationships where there's not a lot of jealousy, not a lot of possession, not a lot of that checking in and these – it's just trust. You trust each other and when you're really into somebody, you want to be around them and you spend time with them. But when you want to be around your friends, they're not like, where are you? Why aren't you checking in? When are you coming home? It's like, fuck off, dude. Like I don't want to be with you if it's going to be like this. There are friends like that and they're brutal and you got to cut them off. Yeah, you do because that's that's that codependency. thing. And what happens when you end up with two people who are like that with each other? Murder-suicide. Yeah, and they less and less learn how to exist on their own. So then when they finally do break it off because it's obviously unhealthy, then they're fucked. Then it takes all this healing to get back to a place where they're independent again. Yeah, that's so true. And the, the, it's it's a weird thing when you find those two people that like they they can't be apart. Like they literally yeah. they don't they go everywhere together. They they're do also everything so together. Gross. Like nobody wants to be around them. <laughs> they're the uh, worst. You, you you have friends like that, don't you? Yeah. No, I I cut off all my friends. Oh, you have no friends. <laughs> <laughs> friends? I'm your friend. Fuck face. Yeah. What are you talking about? Well, I mean, all my shit friends. Bro. Oh, your shit friends. That's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cutting off shit friends is cut is, off all my friends. It's just me. <laughs> my girl (laughs) we're out there riding motorcycles (laughs) well i think the older you get you just realize why am i friends with these people you Mm -hmm. know that happens too that's true when you're younger you need a lot of support and 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 i think the older you get the more you value your alone time and the more you realize that good relationships and good friendships shouldn't feel like work Mm -hmm. and once they start to feel like work you're like fuck i have too many obligations and responsibilities i don't want to have to work to be friends with you also i have a lot of friends that are like super empowering like when i'm around them i want to do better i want to be better i get stimulated you know i I think better my mind function like I'm, i'm inspired you know i'm very lucky to have that um now you know you were talking about your experience when you first came to los angeles and and not having a lot of friends and and kind of being depressed and so when i first moved to la um 
um, I was in New York. I, I'm usually not that comfortable talking about this, but for some reason I'm going to right now. I was living in New York and I was working on my PhD. And then I started dating Bill Maher. Like that's why I came to Los Angeles is because we started dating. I was living in New York, I would kind of come and go and see him. And we weren't committed to each other. I had a life on the West or on the East Coast. He had his life here on the West Coast. And eventually we got close enough that we decided, hey, let's give this thing a go. And so I was like, fuck it. I was actually really not happy in my degree program. So in some ways it was a double whammy. I was very happy to be exploring a deeper relationship with this guy that I had grown to love. And also, I was more and more not happy with my situation in New York. And so it was a new opportunity. I moved out to LA and we ultimately ended up um, dating very seriously for about three years. And that was my my first LA experience was bizarre as fuck. I was dating somebody who was incredibly famous in the public eye who had a lot of money. There was a big equity problem in the relationship. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had just left my degree program. I was searching for answers. And I was young. I was like 24. Um, But I had no friends. None. Mm. I mean, I was friends with people in their 50s. Like that's that was my social circle. And yeah, I would meet people like I would hang out with Sarah Silverman a little bit. But they weren't really my friends. I was the come along. I was the girlfriend. And they were all very nice to me. And I was like, what a weird life. But it was almost like I was living somebody else's life. And I was pretty depressed. And I was very lucky to have my best friend at the time. Kelly was still living in Dallas where I grew up. And um kind of worked with her and hooked her up with a job working with Bill. She ended up becoming his wardrobe stylist, and she still does that to this day, which is really amazing. It was a huge opportunity for her. She always wanted to come to L.A., so and now she's this incredible celebrity stylist and has this great job. And and um, so I was very lucky when she first came out, maybe six months later, because we got an apartment together, and I finally had somebody. But I just had her. And it took probably until just a couple of years ago, so now that's maybe been five years out, before I met this group of friends that we um, affectionately call each other the Nerd Brigade, um, yeah, we hashtag Nerd Brigade on Twitter all the time. And they're they're like one of my best friends just finished her PhD in molecular neuroscience from Caltech. One of my other best friends got his PhD from USC in animal cognition. I have a friend who another neuroscience student at Caltech. I have a friend who. Um, has a marine biology degree. They're all like science communicators, writers, academics, but cool, young, edgy, fun people who like we get each other. We're friends because we have a lot in common. It took a long time to get close to these people and to meet them and to finally find because L.A. is a fucking hard city if you're used to living in a university town. Mm. Like they're it's so what, hard what to meet. What were you in? Well, first I was in Denton, Texas. That's where I did my undergrad and my master's at the University of North Texas. And then, yeah, I was in New York City, but I was living in Queens, specifically in Forest Hills, because I would take the bus to Flushing every day to um, to Queens College. That's where I was working on my Ph.D. at the uh, City University of New York Graduate Center. But Queens College was my campus. And um, a lot of my friends live in Pasadena still, which is very much a college town because they're Cal- they were Caltech students and now they're working there or or some of them are still taking courses. But I saw, I mean, Brian just shook his head. Like, LA, it's hard to meet smart people in this city. It's so full of fucking vapid people and people who will – I learned this quickly. I moved to LA 
dating somebody who was like an A-list celebrity. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait, why do you want to be friends with me? Wait, what's going on? I also, Mm. I've dated another very, very famous person in my life where I I don't publicly talk about that relationship at all just to respect each other's privacy. But I would learn things about people. Like I had this one group of friends who I thought were my friends. Um, And I remember dating this person and being like, hey, do you want to come to a barbecue? I don't know. Oh, but, you know, so-and-so thought that you might want to play tennis. We're going to do it at so-and-so's house. Oh, so-and-so will be there? Oh, yeah. I'm totally Uh, down. And you would get that all the time. This, like, oh, is that why you're friends with me? Yeah, that L.A. thing is very bizarre. It's such a weird experience that I think a lot of people don't – I never even imagine. But it also has opened a million doors for me. Like, how the – you think when I was 23 years old, you know – cutting up mice or, or birds and, and digging around in their brains. I, I always thought I was going to be a, a bench scientist, and that's what I was going to do. And I kind of hated it. I love teaching. Kind of hated doing the lab work. But I was like, okay, this is the path I'm on. This is – who the fuck – if somebody had told me, oh, you're going to be in media – you're going to be on the Joe Rogan podcast. You're going to start your own podcast. You're going to be on television. I'd be like, you're fucking out of your mind. Like, I'm scared of camp. When I was in Texas at 16, I tried out for season two of American Idol. <laughs> you sing? Yeah. I was a jazz singer in college. Like, that's what really? I went to college for. Yeah. And so I made it through four callbacks in season two of American Idol. I made it wow. through the producers, the executive producers, more exact. I finally got to the three judges. Who were they at the, the main ones? It was like Randy and Paula and Simon, Simon. Cowell. And um, so that was the last audition you do before you, I'm going to Hollywood, right? And you know why I didn't get it? All three of them said, like, you're not... They go, we like your voice. We like your look. Because I was a total punk rock kid. I had like short spiky hair and my lip ring and the arm. It was very Avril Lavigne kind of a look back then. And they were like, oh, we, we love it all. You're you're the total package. And I was like, great. And then I auditioned and they were like, you're not going through. And I, oh, but why? And they were like, you are not TV ready. I was so afraid of the cameras. I like didn't have that dynamic personality that all of the reality TV stars have where they're like, I'm going to win this competition because I'm the best. I just walked up and I was like, are you ready for me to sing? I'm so scared. Like it was I, – I, I was meek. I didn't have that that kind of self-assertive thing going on. So you developed that? I think I did. I think it happened from getting thrown into it. Hmm. I think what happens is when you're like, okay, I'm just working. I'm, I'm in the lab. And also I taught. Between then and now, I've taught like a million courses. So that helps. You stand up in front of a classroom and you go, you don't understand glycolysis? We're going to figure this out together up on the whiteboard and you're helping the students. So that helps with your confidence for sure. But also I think getting thrown into it. I come to L.A. and it's like, oh, let's go to the Emmys. Let's walk this red carpet. Let's do all. And then, you know, you're all of a sudden in the room with all these imp- really important people and you don't even know who they are. Like I would go to parties where every single person there was a celebrity and the people you didn't recognize, you didn't recognize because they owned movie studios. Like it was the weirdest feeling. And then once you realize I'm not that different from these people, I can have a conversation with them like anyone else. And I would talk about science. I'd be like, science is awesome. Let me tell you this story. And they'd go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then eventually Bill was like, you need to be doing this on television. You need to be trying this at least because I think you'd be good at it. He completely and utterly pushed me into this. And I thank him every day for it because I never would have done it without his help. When did the depression start? When I was a child. Really? Mm -hmm. So you were dealing with it your whole life? My whole life. Oh, completely. Some of those years, like when I was dating Bill or when I would be moving, those were some of the worst years. Because it was so stressful because you didn't have friends. And because I was was unmedicated then. Uh, Yeah, I didn't start taking medication until about three years ago. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. 
wow. about 27. Did yeah. you try other methods? You tried 5-HTP? Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah, I've tried some things. And I, I've been in therapy my whole life. My parents first put me in therapy when they first started to decide that they were thinking about getting a divorce. And mm. I was young then. I was maybe six or seven. So from the time I remember, I've understood the therapeutic process and they always really promoted that in me so then even after the divorce and the remarriages and all of that i started doing the 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 therapy thing on my own then when i went to college and i was very much on my own i went to college when i was 16 by the way and lived on my own at 60 i was fucking weird kid yeah so i was a little i'm an adult but i wasn't i did that i went to therapy i did all those things by myself but i always had this mental block i always had this like Oh, I don't need meds. Meds means you're really crazy. Mm. Meds means you really don't have control. And not until I kind of hit a very bad rock bottom a few, maybe three years ago, did I finally say, you know what? Fuck it. I've, I think I actually have to do this. I think it would be good for me. And then it was the same experience that I've heard over and over and over from people where finally they get on the meds that are right for them and they calibrate to their dosage and maybe they're, they've been on it for about two months and they just have this epiphany of like, why the fuck did I wait so long? Hmm. I could have felt like this my whole life. What the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> because you're so societally... We're so resistant to looking at mental illness the same way we look at physical illness. Mm. We're so It's so easy. Uh, Paul Gilmartin just made this point when he was on my podcast last week. If you went up to somebody with diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and you were like, what the fuck, dude? Why don't you just think more positively so that your <laughs> pancreas makes more I- insulin? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just make more insulin? It's like they'd be like, what are you talking about? It's the same thing with depression. Mm. People put the onus on like they they look at it like it's a disease of will, but it's not. It's a it's a biological illness. And that's just very hard for people to understand. And so what you end up doing is carrying around a lot of guilt and shame and a lot of feelings like I'm not good enough. I can't will myself out of this if I just think more positively. It's not about that. And I did that for years, years. You just deal with it. And I destroyed oh so many relationships. Wow. Yeah. I can only imagine. I can only imagine being trapped in that scenario. Yeah. Um, but I'm 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 also very sensitive to the, the the variables that different people go through with their bodies. I have hypothyroidism. I have to take uh, thyroid medication. It mm-hmm. runs in my family. My mother has my it. My mom has it too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I, I know I used to get headaches. These weird headaches at the end of the day where I was like, Oh, I'm so fucked like I could fall asleep and it wasn't like it wasn't like I was re- like now I I get tired, I go to sleep. But it was like I could fall asleep just watching TV and mm-hmm. be out for like eight hours. Like it didn't make any sense. It was like a weird tired, like yeah. I was in pain. So, uh, and I get these weird headaches. And then once I finally got on medication, it was like, whoa. Night and day, yeah. right? You're like, yeah. oh, this is this is what other people feel like. Right. Like I thought I was normal because that's another thing. There's such a stigma in this country, not just about mental illness, but about any sort of illness mm-hmm. where people can't openly freely talk about it so you end up living in this weird bubble where you don't re- like i know people that have mental illness that didn't even realize they had mental illness until they finally had a conversation with a doctor about it and they were like oh this isn't normal mm. like not everybody doesn't hear voices or everybody doesn't it's like yeah because you're so afraid to talk to somebody about right. it so that's i mean that's a really important part of this, I think, is just getting past 
the stigma. That's why when something like this with Robin Williams, which is so fucking depressing, happens, a lot of people rally around it and they say, hey, maybe we can use this as a teaching moment because Mm. this guy, no matter how good his life was, he had this thing that he ultimately couldn't kick and it wasn't his fault. It just is that way sometimes. Mm. And hey, maybe you have it too. I think in some ways it's good when high-functioning people come out and talk about their illnesses because then people who are actually experiencing things like loss of employment, loss of a loved one, whatever, or who have had a bad go of it for other reasons are like, even you? Like you had said before, like, even you? Mm. But you're pretty or but you're successful. Mm -hmm. You're whatever. Well, if you could have that, then of course it's not weird that I have, you know? It's like it's a good thing for people to be able to see that they're not alone like that. Yeah, and and it's also there's a bunch of people that attribute other people's depression really irresponsibly to a bunch of different things. Oh, They'll yeah. say like, oh, I had a guy on the podcast last week that was saying that Robin Williams killed himself because his wife's, his ex-wives took all his money. As if he knows it all. Well, it was, anything it was, about it. Yeah, it's, it's like, it oh, so, I'm so glad you're such an expert on that. He was that. saying that it was a, a women's addiction to free stuff that oh was caught. It was, it was oh so. That's horrible. And and it makes you want to be like, who the fuck are you to presume yeah. that you know what's happening in somebody else's head ever? Well, not only that, it's insanely irresponsible to go against the grain of science and medicine, which is clearly established that it's an illness. There's it's an, an illness. illness. Yeah. And I think that that's something, too, that. A lot of people don't understand the same way we're so comfortable with concepts of diagnosis and cure because we're so used to things like flu, cold, um, you know, tonsil infection, whatever, where you take an antibiotic or you take an antiviral or you just wait and your immune system clears the disease. We're used to catching things and then eliminating them. But when you have disease states that are process states like cancer, like diabetes, like mental illness, there's no cure per se. Like I even I I got a tweet just earlier today from somebody who was like, blah, blah, blah. Have you ever thought about blah, blah, blah to cure your depression? It's like I'm not cured of depression because I take citalopram. I'm in treatment. That's fascinating. I'll be in treatment the rest of my life. Do you believe uh, as a person who's a neuroscientist, is it possible that they could eventually come up with something that balances your brain out instead of just adding something to your neurochemistry, which sort of enhances your serotonin levels, mm-hmm. but rather something that where they can get it at a genetic level? I hope so. I mean, I really hope so. We're starting to see major improvements in cancer biology with um, personal genomic medicine. My fear with genomic medicine is only not to put a dark cloud on it because I think that it has oh, like amazing um, prospects. My fear is that it's going to further increase the kind of class divide where you've got people who are sick because sickness strikes rich and poor the same. But for some re- reason, we are a very class-based system. And I think that you're going to see that rich people get those kinds of treatments and poor people don't. And that, that kind of scares me. That Isn't that how me. it always is with anything it emerging kind of technologies? Yeah. Remember in the old days, the Wall Street phone? Remember that Wall Street movie where Michael Douglas had that big <laughs> fucking stupid phone? And yeah. that was like a huge status symbol. Yeah. Rappers used to have in videos. Most people couldn't afford a phone. Yeah. Now I, I go to Brazil all the time for the UFC mm-hmm. and I've gone to these poor neighborhoods. You see people on cell phones. Oh, you see it in, in African nations where there aren't en- there isn't enough malaria medication, but I mean, there's this huge malaria um, push right now to increase uh, 
uh, awareness. And, you know, you can get mosquito nets, you can do malaria tests on your family, and you do it all through your cell phone because it's very common for people to have cell cell service Mm. or maybe not service, but to have access to a cell phone because the technology is getting cheaper and cheaper. So, yes, I do think that time always tells and that hopefully eventually that kind of stuff trickles down. But I wish it didn't have to trickle down. Mm. I wish medication. I wish health and wellness were a more egalitarian enterprise that one of the biggest problems i think with the structure of american government and being such a capitalist society which i'm all about capitalism don't get me wrong i think we need to be a socialist capitalist blend just like we are um we have a lot of socialist systems in our country the mail is socialist educate public education is socialist we have a lot of capitalist systems in this country i hate that healthcare is a for-profit system in america it makes no sense to me. The, the argument is obviously that people who work harder or more ambitious, become better at it, should be rewarded for that. And that's what's going to motivate them to work harder and be the best heart surgeon, to be the best brain doctor, to be the best you know, guy who fixes bones. I just feel like by the time you're a brain surgeon and you're a licensed brain surgeon, you're a fucking good brain surgeon. Like you, you don't get through a 10-year residency. You, you get your surgical degree and then you have a 10-year residency before you become a neurosurgeon. You don't get through that and you're like a subpar neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a fucking incredible neurosurgeon. But aren't there the best of the best? Like of course it, there's the it, best of the best. And if those always... people want to do private practice on top of it, that's fine. But Private sh- practice on top of the socialized medicine? Yeah, there's, there has to be a national health service. There, there should, has to be. I agree with that. Here's I think... the problem. Here's the problem. Fundamentally. And I, it's very – if you can provide me an argument that solves this problem for a capitalist healthcare system, then I'm all about to – and I don't mean you, but I mean anybody listening. I'm all about hearing it. The problem is that when you have a capitalist system that's a competition-based system for profit, what ends up happening is that people compete. That's how it works, right? You compete. And a lot of times they say that's what drives prices down is that you compete and prices get better and then you've you know the best part whatever um but what ends up happening when you have for profit healthcare is that illness is incentivized wellness is not people make more money the sicker you get people make more money the more procedures you have to get people make more money the longer you stay in the hospital and the minute i'm not saying there's some grand conspiracy to keep people th- sick but if you've got an industry like the insurance and pharmaceutical and for-profit hospital industry where the profit comes from sickness where is the incentive to get people well I'm not saying that doctors aren't very noble people. They are, and they work every day, doctors, nurses, other healthcare officials, to get people better. But the system in s- itself does not um, incentivize wellness. It incentivizes sickness. So at that very basic level, it's a bit broken because somewhere along that chain, people are going to take advantage. They're going to say, oh, I make more money if... This guy has to stay in the hospital an extra day or I make more money if this guy has to get this, quote unquote, unnecessary procedure all the way across the board. The sicker you are, the more money goes into the system. And that's really gross. It's gross. There are certain things that capitalism don't work on. And I think that wellness, which is a basic human right, is one of those things. It just doesn't make sense. It's fundamentally incompatible with that type of monetary system but isn't that just taking into account only people that do the wrong thing 
Yeah. I mean, but people who do the right thing, who motivate themselves to become the best orthopedic surgeon and treat the Lakers and fix all their knee issues and these people rise to the occasion, shouldn't they be rewarded Totally. For and the turd in the but, pool is not the surgeon. Trust right. me. It's the insurance company. It's the uh, pharmaceutical company. Hmm. It's but the, it's occasionally the surgeon. I have a friend who, uh, when he was young, um, my, my friend Aubrey, when he was young, worked at a, uh, a resort and he, he, he clearly remembers these doctors bragging about how they talk talked some guy into uh, getting a surgery and because that he's buying a Porsche. Yeah. No, there is that. Oh, for sure. So so the fact that it even trickles down to the people who took a Hippocratic oath, to mm-hmm. the people who we think of as being the most noble of the most noble of uh, citizens in this country, if it even trickles down to them, how is it going to affect somebody who's pushing paper at the insurance company where you're just a number on a piece of paper, you're just a statistic, right. and you're a bottom line, you're not so a real is it person? So uh, is, is the answer to cut out that aspect of it, that the insurance company is the, the, the issue, and that really socialized medicine would be compensating the doctors, and that the doctors would still be potentially able to rise yeah, above I mean, that, the others? That would be my answer is the same, I think, as any other industrialized Western nation. We're the only industrialized Western nation that doesn't have national health care. So what ends up happening is you have a public option. You have the option to have a health care system that is free and available to you. And it has basic levels of treatment and care for anything that could go wrong with you. And there are doctors you can see and there are hospitals you can go to. If you want to go private, this it's the same way that we have education in this country. I had an amazing public education. I have friends who went to private school. Their parents wanted them to go to private school. Good for them. They may have had a better education than me. They may not have. Because there were still amazing teachers available and an incredible infrastructure in place for me to get an incredible education as if a you get lucky student. in the right spot or you can be in the la unified school system and have fucking horrible education and that that is a problem with gentrification and with segregation and with again i think some of the problems of our capitalist society well it's, it's certainly a problem in how we view and what you know what we think about in terms of where our money should go like if we had if we had privatized police force and privatized fire like every time your house was on fire you had to pay someone to come and and fix the issue and put the fire out like my god it's happened before it's happened yeah you can find stories um online of people living in in regions where they have like a privatized um fire service like it's a uh for pay fire service and like people's houses have burned down because so they can't afford to put it out. A weird area, like some like rural, some rural area, yeah. exactly. But imagine if that was an urban issue. Yeah, can, like we, it is with healthcare. I mean, mm-hmm. healthcare. You could be in the biggest, most populated city in the world, and there's poor people that don't have healthcare. Yeah, I think that if a society is going to offer basic services, police force, um, fire, for you know, fire departments, medicine has got to be. It's got to be one of them. And and the thing is, when you put the kind of money into preventive care that's necessary, you end up saving so much money on the back end. When people who can't afford to go to the doctor until they have a festering wound or until they've allowed the cancer to spread or whatever are going to the doctor early on and they're getting a checkup because they can afford it because it's free to them. When you've got somebody who's living on the street who's obviously going to be subject to much more infection, much more disease because they just they're living in squalor. If they can go to the doctor on a regular basis and get a checkup, they're not going to be then going to the doctor later to get some multi-thousand dollar procedure that Hippocratic oath, they have to do this. 
If somebody goes into and their like fucking arm is hanging off, no doctor is going to be like, I can't reattach your arm. You're just going to die. They're going to do it. They're going to bill these people and they're never going to fucking pay their bills because they can't afford to. And then you and I are going to absorb that cost in our in the money that we're paying for our insurance. Well, doesn't that go back when you're talking about people living in squalor? That goes back to the mental illness issue as well, because Hugely. that's a massive percent of those people that are wandering around homeless. They're... Such an important point to make. Well, that was the goddamn Ronald Reagan administration. They changed the standards. They let loose. I remember it. Yep. I was a kid, and I remember being in New York and seeing all these fucking people wandering. I came to New York for um, a martial arts tournament during the Reagan administration. And I remember like they, people were talking, you know, I was young, I was a teenager and these uh, adults were talking about these, uh, that all of a sudden they changed the mental health standards and they were releasing all these people. And I was like, what? Yeah. Like they're just releasing them. They were taking these people that were in mental institutions. They changed the standards of what you needed to to keep these people uh, in these facilities. And they were just releasing them on the streets. And there was was influx. There were two massive releases. There was one in the 50s when Haldol first came on the market, which is um, an antipsychotic, which was a major improvement in psychiatric care. So all of a sudden you had people who were schizophrenic, who had delusional kind of disorders, and you could treat them. And so these people who were like basically just being fed and watered in asylums were given Haldol and they could lead functional lives again. So there you saw a big change in the way that mental health services um, happened. You you no longer had the asylum population and then you started having more this idea of like a mental health facility. And then again, during the Reagan administration, you, you saw a big release. The problem there was it was it was really a name only. They, they weren't getting any better treatment. They were just put out on the street. They just changed the standard. Exactly. And so you've got these people that are put out on the street. And it's it's again, there's a don't get me wrong. I I mean, look at me like I like I said, I moved out when I was fucking 16. I busted my ass my whole life to like work really hard. I got a good education. I'm I, you know, even coming to L.A. with Bill, he opened a bunch of doors for me. I fucking walked through those doors. I made sure that I was as responsible as possible. I am all about fiscal and personal responsibility. I have amazing credit. <laughs> I have no debt. Um but I also know that as a nation, we're only as strong as the weakest amongst us. And there are certain people to whom those types of standards just can't apply because they're they're ill. Well, it's a spectrum issue, isn't it? I yeah. mean, there's, there's so many variables that when, when people like to look at these issues and look at them in a black and white term, I'm a liberal, so I think this. I'm a mm-hmm. conservative, so I think that. And that's really, uh, you know, I have a lot of ideas that are very liberal and a lot of ideas that are fairly conservative. Me too, there's, yeah. There's, there's a... There, there's real issues with picking a side like that, especially just, when it comes to ideologies. It's just such a lazy way to mm-hmm. think. It's, yes. it's You're not thinking. You're letting somebody else think for you. Yeah. I get a lot of hate when I come on your podcast, but also when I go on The Young Turks. Anytime I talk about GM foods um, mm-hmm. or genetically modified crops in any way. And because what ends up happening is people look at me and they go, oh, you're a liberal. You're a shill. They say I'm a shill because they look at me and they say, okay, yeah. you're a liberal. You're a progressive. You're left wing. Why do you have this super conservative? conservative ideology when it comes to GM foods, why would you say that you think that's a good thing? You must be pro big agribusiness. You must be pro Monsanto. And it's like, because I don't inform my politics based on what a party tells me, my politics are informed based on the science. I study the science behind genetic modification. And I come to a personal conclusion that genetic modification in and of itself is not only not dangerous, but can also be a huge 
boon. It can be really um, helpful for health and human uh, safety across, especially in lower income and globalized areas where they're not very industrialized. The second problem is that people have a really hard time with the concept of synecdoche, this idea of, you know, that's a literary term for like looking at the part for the whole or mm-hmm. the whole for the part. So people say GM food, Monsanto. Oh, Monsanto. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's not the fucking same thing. That's a company that utilizes GM technology. And yes, recently I got offered a branded entertainment job with Monsanto and I had to turn it down. And the reason I turned it down was not necessarily because I really disagree with the practices, even though I do fucking disagree with their practices. Like, let's be honest, there are a lot of Monsanto things that make me mad. Social practices. Yeah. But well, and the capitalist kind of. But But the reason I had to turn down this brand deal is because I knew that if I ever took a dime from a company like Monsanto, my ability as a journalist to talk about GM crops from a a very neutral perspective would be out the window. Nobody would ever take me seriously again. So Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with Big Pharma. People go like, oh, Big Pharma's evil. And it's like, so what, should you never take drugs again? Are you out of your fucking mind? It's like you've got to be able to look at these things in a nuanced way and understand that there are problems and there are evils, but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and you can't say, oh, all modern medicine is terrible because Pfizer is making money on the backs of poor people. It's like, yeah, that's fucked up about Pfizer, but that doesn't mean modern medicine is terrible. Those are two totally different conversations. It's, a, it's also people, when they start talking about genetically modified foods, one of the things that they have to take into consideration is that almost everything you eat is genetically modified. Oh, yeah. When you go to the grocery store, if you're getting corn, if you're getting apples, if you're getting tomatoes, stop thinking that you this just because it's organic that it's not genetically modified. The corn that you eat today has no resemblance to the original corn. None whatsoever. And then they'll say, yeah, but it might not be transgenic. It likely is transgenic too. And that's another thing. Like genetic modification is a really big umbrella term. It could be selective breeding is Mm -hmm. genetic modification. A lot of people have a hard time with the concept of transgenic foods. And I say to them, fine. If you don't want to eat transgenic foods, good. Define transgenic. So transgenic foods would be actually uh, a scientist going into the genome of an organism. Let's say it's a, a type of corn. They go into the genome and they go, okay, this corn tends to die readily when the temperature gets above 101. Well, the climate is changing. It's getting hotter and hotter where they farm it. So we're going to tinker with the genome and we're going to delete a gene or insert a gene or move the genes around in some way so that this corn is now drought resistant. Change the genome, produce a new corn crop, and then continue to breed that corn crop. And that is really the goal and generally the motivation behind GM crops. It's to make them withstand things like droughts or pests or whatever so that they can live hardier and feed more people in that way. Now, sometimes you have a company like Monsanto doing their own research where they want to make a a crop that can only live for one generation and then die so that farmers have to keep buying their seeds, for Mm. example, or they make a Roundup Ready crop. I want a crop so that I can spray the whole thing down with Roundup, the crop survives, but all of the weeds around it die. It's an easier way to farm, but it could have some really detrimental ecological effects. But for the most part, this is why a lot of scientists get pissed off about all the GM hysteria, because they're like, okay, if I were to take this random corn crop and that random corn crop and breed them, I'm shuffling like 30,000 genes. If I were to go in targeted and change three genes that only affect the ability for it to withstand a higher temperature, it's a much more specific and targeted way to change this plant. I trust it more. I know exactly what I'm eating. 
But people are like, ah, it's horrifying because you're going in with, you know, pipetters and, and tools. Well, it's because of things like Roundup, because yeah. of companies that do. I mean, there's a reason why people are suspicious. There's a reason why people are cautious. It's totally. because they are worried about. And, and then there's been also some there's been some fuckery involved in these studies, too. Like there's a, a study about rats where they, they showed they grow, grew all these tumors. The tumors but yeah. it turned out that the, the rats they used were more susceptible to tumors in the first place. Yeah, all, it's not. It's it's. You know what? As somebody, as a person who has never studied lab science to try and make sense of all the bullshit in the media and, and, and to be reading articles that were written by journalists who have never studied lab right. science, how are you expected to keep things straight? That's why I do what I do for a living. I'm a science communicator and my job is to look at research that exists and to try and translate that to the public. But I also want to try and understand where the public is coming from. Why are you afraid of this thing? Why does this thing worry you? Let's understand the psychological reasons behind it. Let's understand what you've been fed your whole lives by the media and see what's reasonable and what's not and come to a rational conclusion about it. Unfortunately, we as a species respond better in some ways to fear and hysteria we we see something on the news that's like holy shit this thing could kill you and you're like oh my god really i need to know about this because if the media was always presenting things rationally like okay let's take a balanced approach to this Mm -hmm. let's look at the pros and the cons and people would tune out it's not that interesting anymore the things that we find salient are the things that raise the hairs on the backs of our necks and what that ends up breeding is you know, is just a media landscape of fear mongering and screaming matches and worst case scenario conversations, which I don't think is very helpful for anybody. It's also the reality of the absorption of information, the people's ability to take in how, I mean, how much time do you have in a day? Exactly. Most people work eight plus hours a day, plus commuting, plus family, plus and they whatever have to be an expert you might have. about yeah. whatever they do for a living. And I don't, you know, contradicting information. You could always go online and find a, a host of websites that will tell you about the evils of genetically modified foods. Easily. And if you, and if you absorb that information and you, that that is what you preach. That's your mantra now. It's very difficult to be open-minded and then sort of accept other ideas and tr- that contradict those original ideas Completely. that you've been telling everybody about. And, and and the truth is it's 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 hard to figure out who to trust, especially in a landscape like this. It's That's why I never promote – I have no intention as a, as a science communicator that the work that I do is going to necessarily – um, promote a lot of people to go off and become scientists themselves. I mean, hopefully young young children or some teens, people who are in that uh, in that age group and who are interested, maybe they'll be influenced a little bit about some of the work that I do. But more, more than that, I want to see a, a higher level of scientific literacy in this country. All that means is that we think more with our brains and less with our emotions and less with our, you know, that Stephen Colbert truthiness. Like we got to get away from truthiness just because something feels right doesn't necessarily mean that it is right. So it's like stop for a minute. Listen to the argument that's being made. Who is making the argument? Do they have any financial reason to be making the argument? Do they have any political reason to be making the argument? Is this um, is this article about GMOs being evil on a website called Oh My God GMOs Are Evil dot com, or, or you know, or is it like Someone a legitimate news? Someone needs to start that website right now. <laughs> and 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 that's the thing. Yeah. And I I and and I think this also goes back to this conversation I had about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. The mainstream media has its problems, but journalism as an enterprise has a lot of nobility to it. 
the pharmaceutical company has major problems and it's very broken. The insurance company too, but medicine has so much worth to it, especially, you know, evidence-based bio- biomedical um, advances. Psychiatric medicine has a lot of, uh, you know, pluses. The, the process of genetic modification is so important, but yes, Monsanto has a lot of problems. We've got to be able to think more nuanced about these things. And instead of going, well, I don't trust Fox News, therefore I don't trust any media, therefore I only am going to go to the site that keeps, as you said, reinforcing what I already believe – OMG, GMOs are mm-hmm. horrible.com. That's the only place where I get my news. Well, now you're in an echo chamber. Yeah, that's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you brought up there about political, about financial, all the different motivations, all the different things, the variables, that's also stuff that you have to try to pay attention to and squeeze into your head. And that's the thing it's that hard. people, it's impossible. We need someone like you to sort of break it down, someone who has a background in this particular area to break it down in a way that we can understand. We'll go, okay, I'm comfortable that Kara Santa Maria is being honest with me about this particular a- uh, aspect of depression and neurochemistry. Mm. He, these are, this is her experience. This is also what she knows about the science behind it. Because I have okay. no motivation otherwise. Nobody's exactly. paying me to say this. And I think that this is why we, as, you know, the listeners of the Joe Rogan experience, the listeners of Talk Nerdy with Kara Santa Maria, the, the people who are really involved in the next movement of um, alternative and new media, it is our responsibility to continue to support these kinds of programs and to continue to speak up and become engaged and involved. Because if we're not happy with the way that traditional media is handling things because they're playing to the ratings and they're playing to the lowest common denominator, we can't be passive about it. We have to support the news outlets and the organizations and the podcasts and the web shows that that we support. We have to do our part to make sure that those things don't fail. Because the unfortunate thing is we don't have the backers that they have, you know, I have uh, Squarespace on my side. I have Computer Learning Zone on my side. You have these wonderful um, uh, sponsors on your side that help you keep doing this so that you can offer it for free to your listeners. But we're not being backed by Pfizer. But we don't have to be. Monster. We're also we don't doing it with these other companies that it's find true. value in it. And they know that we're going to say some crazy shit. But the only reason they're going to keep supporting us if, is if people keep listening. But and the if only reason keep... why people are going to keep listening is because it's interesting. And the exactly. only reason why it's interesting is because we're being honest. <laughs> yes. And you so that, that whole chain, like we're all in it together. I right. think that's the important thing is that like I agree. we're here for you. You're here for us. And we're all on that kind of same team to be that counterculture and to – to offer opinions, but also offer facts that are, are that are based in evidence, that are based in reason, that aren't based in some sort of corporate interest or because some producer is in that fucking thing in my ear telling me <laughs> that I have to do or say or act like somebody that I'm not. I would love to talk to you about this to the end of time. And I yeah. would love to not tell you that you're already past the time you were supposed to leave. You know what's so but... funny, too, is the reason I have to leave, and I'm so sorry, you guys, is because I have, ther- I have therapy <laughs> at three, and I've got to make it all the way across town to see my therapist. Oh, listen. So. <laughs> anytime you want to do this, I'm more than happy. I love it. I love, I love, it. It. I love doing it with you, and I'm so happy you're doing your show. Thank you so much for wearing my T-shirt. Awful. I have to – can I take a moment to plug? Is yeah, that okay? Please. Because I just started making all this great merchandise, and Is you can find it. Um, if you go, uh, Brian, to my main website, just to care – like if you go home, maybe, okay. click right. on home, um, then you can see that I've got all of my episodes right there. You can download them. What's you can with the dinosaur? That was on a different page. Uh, it was an old episode that I did of Talk Nerdy to Me. But 
But there's, you know, you can see my episodes of the podcast right there. It's a, I use SoundCloud, so it's through there. And then if you scroll down, you can see all of my merchandise there. I have T-shirts and, and stickers and slap just bracelets. Just like this one. Just like that one. Sexy old school microphone. Right yeah, I'm going to have a new style coming out soon. And also I'm going to be offering soon handmade mugs from a really amazing potter friend of mine. Oh, wow. So those That's will be cool. really cool custom one-of-a-kind mugs. Um, mine are made in a fucking factory in China by slaves. <laughs> But they're beautiful. They are are pretty cool. Well, it's Mike Maxwell. Mike Maxwell, the artist. I really like it. It's cool. And I get to take this home, right? Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. Sweet. (laughs) We have run JRE cups now, too. And if you you guys want to buy them, they're available at higherprimate.com. Thank you very much, Kara. Thank You're you. fucking awesome. Your podcast is awesome. I always love talking to you. It's it just uh, it's always just trying to catch up with your thought process Yay. and stuff it all in there. But I appreciate it very much. Thank you so, so much, ladies and gentlemen. Please check out our podcast. It's amazing. And Kara tweet Santa me, Maria. guys. Tweet me at Kara. Tweet Santa the Maria. shit out of her. <laughs> um, anything else before we go? You got anything going on? Need uh, new t-shirts. You just fucking talk to the back <laughs> of the microphone. Son. Four new t-shirts at ShopSquad.tv and Beautiful. come into Columbus, Ohio, with Tony and Tiffany Haddish. Uh, and cool. all that information is on deskquad.tv go there check it out and thank you to our sponsors thank you today to ZipRecruiter ZipRecruiter.com go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash Rogan and uh, you can post jobs for free give it a shot ZipRecruiter.com thanks also to NatureBox Go to naturebox.com forward slash Rogan and get 50% off your first box. And thanks also to Onnit. Go to O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word Rogan. Save 10% off any and all supplements. All right, you dirty fucks. We'll see you tomorrow. Big kiss. Mwah. Mwah.